Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I'm jazzed to be here. It's the first record of 2023, 2023. Yeah, it's you and me. Oh, I like that. It's nice. I like that. I, I am curious what it would have been for each year. Like, what else would you have rhymed? Oh, boy. Yeah. 2022. Fuck you. <laughs> well, I thought it would have been just me and you. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just meant that was in retrospect. That was more in retrospect. You're right. Yeah, 2022 I, was garbage. It was bad for me, anyway. It was yeah. bad, bad, bad. But look, you know, there was highlights. There was lowlights. Um, but the 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 big ex- excitement for me over here, 2023, Yeah. Uh, you're going to hear it in the background, is uh, we've got a new pup in the house. Um, Bean uh, has come home, home to me on New Year's Day 2023, yeah. year of the Bean, and she's very active, so you might hear her r- run through, you may hear her get into my lap and then smell the uh, the microphone. She's uh, she's a ham and a half, and I hey. couldn't be happier. Oh, I like The crinkling, the crinkling is, well, I'm going to have to take that toy away probably. <laughs> Ham and bean uh, together feels right. Ham and bean. Well, you know? it's like pork and beans, it feels like. Right? Yeah. That feels right. It does. So it makes sense that bean would be a ham. Doesn't it? Bean, come here. Come here. Well, and she's a toy away from her. Um, but listen, you know, I think that there's a lot of, there's always hope with the start of a new year that it'll be better yeah. than the last. Uh, but I am hesitant to yeah. to put that out there because you don't want to also uh, have it be like yeah you really you think so <laughs> hold my beer um, 
So you know what I've decided that my slogan is for 2023? Oh, I can't wait. All jokes aside, this is earnest. Yes. 2023. Wait and see. <laughs> oh, I... And for me, it was it was that pause. It was that little pause and then the like shrug of like, eh. wait and see. You know what I mean? 20, it's it's hopefully Here's hoping. Yeah, here's you know? hoping. Exactly. Like yeah. it's um, yeah. I uh, I just don't want to set myself up to fail. Right. And yeah. so wait and see. Yeah. Wait. And I see. mean, look. It's like a it's like a New Year's resolution that someone that co-host this podcast may or may not have made this year. Yeah. Um, to maybe take less trips to Seven Eleven. Sure. In a week. Sure. How's uh, that going? Oh, I. I fucked it up pretty hard. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to admit it, but just as an example, I had foolishly told myself, maybe try and cut it down 3 a week. 3 a week felt reasonable. Um and then I I had a, a calendar so I've been highlighting each day that I've gone just so I could keep track of it visually. Um by day 12, I'd gone 9 times. <laughs> so maybe 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 it'll balance out somewhere. It won't. Look, I'll say it. By the fourth time that I went, I was like, "Oh, this is this is not setting me up for failure." And then I went, "You know what? Why am I limiting myself?" <laughs> so, yes. So then I turned that way and was like, "Forget it. It gives me joy. Twenty twenty three is the year of joy." Yeah. Well, let's Here's try. Open. Here's. <laughs> we'll see. Wait and yeah. see. Yeah, uh, that's all you can do is what I think is what I've learned in life is that yeah. if you set yourself up too high, you can fall. Yeah. So yeah. don't uh, hope for the best, wish for the best, manifest the best, but yeah. just say I'm cautious. I'm just, we're gonna wait and see. We're gonna yeah. hope that it comes, uh, and that's that's the best that I think I I have to give at the moment. Um, we're recording this so early in the day that yeah. my hair is damp. Yeah. And there's something about it that feels, I don't know, it feels like loose. It feels like I have a rebirth. Hey! Because your hair is wet from the canal? Is that what we're... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I meant like maybe like a baptism, but I I like the idea that I've I've come fresh out the chute. I've I've slid out the chute and into this record. (laughs) Wow. If I, what I like more than anything is 2023, we haven't changed a bit. Nope. No, nope. I like shooting, that a lot. We're shooting out of this shoot. We're popping out of the shoot and into your ears. <laughs> what more could they want? That I don't know. Yeah. That I do not know. Yeah. Um, but listen, it's also Friday the 13th. Yeah. 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 Look, it's uh, there was a, a chunk of time. Uh, in there between when we needed to record and when we needed to again. And, uh, oh, God, life is busy. <laughs> we had grand just, plans. We had, we had so grand many, plans. It was like, we're yeah. going to get ahead. We're going to do we this. Yeah. And the problem is, dear listeners, sometimes these cases, they take you, they take left-hand turns. It's like you can yeah. try and limit your research, but then you get into it and it's like, ah, oh, damn it. So then you take much longer than you anticipated. Yeah. 
et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and yeah, life. I'm also launching a, a new television show called yeah. Not Dead Yet, which will be airing starting February 8th on ABC. You can stream it on Hulu, Disney Plus around the rest of the world. Um, hey. And I believe on CTV in Canada, I don't know if that's been announced. I may get in trouble for saying that. I might get in trouble. I don't know what they don't. I don't know. They don't tell us. This is the thing. People will message and say, where can I watch this in blank country? And I'm like, I don't know. They they don't tell us. We sure. kind of figure these things out on our own uh, sure. as best we can. So bear with me. But yeah, it's a busy time. It's probably the busiest time uh, I've been through in a while other than yeah. making the show. Um and so, yeah, anyway, point being is, yeah, we had grand plans, but you know what we should have done? We should have said is wait and see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, we, uh, there, you had come up with a plan for something yep. for us to record for Patreon. And our plan was we were going to get that done in December. Yep. And it was going to be, here we go. Away we go. It's going to, here you go. We did not. I don't think we did that before New Year's. No, no, because we just we were like, oh, no. And I was like, oh, I, I need to get on it and I need to <laughs> research uh, around Christmas so that I can be ready to go uh, right away in the new year. Yeah. Uh, and then I was so sick. <laughs> so, so sick. Uh, I missed the majority of Christmas. I I was in bed for most of it. My family had to go to uh, family things without me because I just could not make it. Um, so there was no research happening there. Uh, things things were bad. And then the new year hit and it's like, I'm just trying to juggle everything outside of work combined with work. And I know it's only partway into the year, but it's like, I'm already worried. How long is that tree going to stay up in that living room? Oh, I hear that. I like the lights. I like clicking that and the kids go to school and I just research and type notes surrounded in nothing but Christmas lights. Is it probably ruining my eyes? Yes. Is it joyful? Absolutely. You'll be joyful and blind. Right? Oh, God, those lights are the last thing I'll see. Oh, God, that's sad. Well, We've again, turns. wait and see. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know what it yeah. is for me is, is that putting up Christmas decorations is so fun and joyful and all of the above and mm -hmm. taking them down is, I think, one of the worst feelings. Because I'm at the point yes. where I want them down. I'm like, oh, oh it's okay. just a reminder that it's over, that it's like we're moving on, all these things, sure. it's done. I want them down, but I don't have time. So oh. then I have to stare at them and like they're a fucking symbol of my own failure, that it's like I, I can't get mm -hmm. the gumption up to take them down. Like that's, that's, yeah. I, that's what it is for me. Oh, I get that. Yeah. I get it. And the worst part is, they're all attached, so I turn the click one button, it turns my tree on. It turns the lights in the garland above the fireplace, and then it turns a little set that are in my window. So then my neighbors all know, oh, she's still got her lights up. <laughs> yeah. And she's still got everything going on in that house. And it, it's mid-January, and I still haven't put up. I was planning this whole Lego Christmas scene that was going to be in my home for December, still haven't started it. The, mm. Oh, no. The one thing I've done to go in my little Lego town is I created, I had to piece them together brick by brick myself. I I, I made a little Dave Grohl out of Lego. That's adorable. So that I could just have him in my little Lego Christmas village because I thought that'd be nice. 
I don't see. want to put anything on your plate, but Correct. I think we need a photograph of Lego Dave Grohl. Yeah, well, I'll write it down on the on the socials. Yeah. That's that's you know how a priority somehow, to me. I don't even know why it's a thing, but you know uh, how much I love making recreating people in Lego. You do. I don't know why she does, but I do. I it's a thing I have. So I've created yeah. us. Yeah. Us at I recreated the photo of us and uh, Mother Laurel at Supernatural Con. That's right. God, that's Lego. cute. Yeah, I God, live that's for cute. It. I live for it. Listen, I'm not mad at it. I, I love it too. I I, uh, I I also just love the the whimsy of Dave Grohl needs to be in this Christmas scene. I know there was no reason to it. It's like it's going to be full of like there's going to be like little elves and Santa and people shopping. And then I think because there's like a I think there's a little music store and maybe that's where my brain went. But he is holding a guitar. There is a mic with a mic stand. Um, one of the pieces was forgotten in an order. Someone oh. forgot to send it, which is very frustrating. So I have to order from somewhere else uh, to get it. So the mic is not attached to the stand yet, but it will be. Yep. It will I know, be. I, yeah. I've never doubted you. When I have time, which is sometime after the Christmas stuff comes down. Yeah. Lego God, Dave Grohl will stay up at all times. I like that. And I've already like see that for you. Oh, um, I'm, my next goal is Bert and Larry as Lego. But I gotta tell you, it's we we put a we put a challenge on me without me knowing. You need again a hairy chest, chains. I mean, there's a lot going on there. There's, it's yeah, it's it's gonna be one of those. I'm gonna maybe have to try and like. I might have to look into like getting it custom. I'm going to do my best with pieces I can find, but we'll see. But that's an investment piece I think you're going to tre treasure for the rest of life. Nothing makes me happier uh, <laughs> than when you tell me something is an investment piece. <laughs> I, and it's usually toy-based. Yes. Yeah. Because that's how I live my life. Uh, same. Uh, now, listen, I'm wearing a Peekaboo Desperado shirt. I know uh, there's many of you listening going, what the hell is that? Well, I'll tell you what it is, dear listeners. It was the highlight of Patreon in 2022 for me. Um, Christy ah. uh, made a joke and we played a game where I describe a reality show to her and then she yep. guesses, makes up titles for what she thinks that show would be called. Yep. And Peekaboo Desperado. Yeah. Made me laugh, I think, harder than almost anything. Uh, so, listen, all this to say, patreon.com slash cocktails. if you'd like some bonus <laughs> episodes, you too. You too can uh, can get on board with the Peekaboo Desperado group. I don't even know what that means. Well, uh, but that really was, that, that was a highlight for me of last year. Oh, my God. She's wearing the same one under her hoodie. It was, well, it was the plan. And then uh, <laughs> there... There may or may not have been some slight computer issues prior to the record, a.k.a. my brain's so fried I forgot to plug in the computer um, and couldn't oh, figure out why my microphone wasn't working. I plugged and unplugged everything. I rebooted things. I went through system preferences. I was trying to figure out. And then my husband's like, obviously you've done this. And I went, ah, no. <laughs> So that was embarrassing. Um, and 
sitting here in that time, I've realized it is freezing in here. So I did yeah. have to get the hoodie. Uh, and I was going to say I'm wearing the matching uh, Desperado pants, but I'm not. I'm, I am in the uh, Boort and Scary pants. Oh, I'm in a, just a general short. I general know, short? I... Anyway, I'm so sorry. It's <laughs> That's the energy we've got. Yeah, that's the look, energy. It's Friday the 13th. What does everybody want? Yeah, this is this is you're lucky we're getting this. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, but you know what else? We're lucky to yeah. be alive. If I've yeah. learned anything in this uh journey on earth, it's that we're every day is a true uh, gift and we yeah. should be so lucky. Um so on that note, let's talk about death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's one way to get it in there. Right. I mean, it is what it is. It's it what is what do. it is. It's why they're here. It's yep, exactly. And we appreciate yeah. you all for it. Now, I have to ask, yeah, because this is a Canadian case. Yes. The name of of the victim, yes. Richard Oland? Oland? I've How just are been we saying pronouncing Oland. That? Oland. Okay, great. Uh, because again, depending on where you're, what region you're from in Canada, that could also take on different pronunciations uh, in oh. how you would say it. Some would say Oland. I feel like, but I, I Oland sure. is my is my gut. But sure. I I am going to take this bullet and say that if there is a mispronunciation happening, it's my fault. No. So come for me. Everything I've heard, everyone has said Oland. What I love is that I don't believe that that means that there won't be people coming for us about the pronunciation of it. Because oh, it's sure. like Newfoundland or Newfoundland. You know what I mean? It's Newfoundland. That's oh, how we yeah. pronounce that. It's not Newfoundland. Well, you lo- so that's hey, wait, why I, I got nervous. Time. Newfoundland. Say it one more time. Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Yeah, I think that's how I say it. Newfoundland. You hit land. That's what the people from there have told me. You hit land. It's not Newfoundland. Oh it's yeah, Newfoundland. No, Newfoundland. Oh. It's Newfound. It's it's Newfoundland. Yeah, Newfoundland. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's yeah. why I think this was a bugaboo for me. Was that it was still it was sure. land, and I think well, I've just been so trained by the East course. Coasters. You know what I'm saying? Well, I I I'm not going to make you say it, but at some point during this, I do say harbor. Oh, fantastic! <laughs> and when I heard said, when I wrote it the first time, I was like, oh, I got to find a way to make her say it. Because it is one now, of my favorite things, you know? Now, I want to just make it clear. This is the first record I've had since having been. And I, she's got it. I don't know if you can hear it. But it's like the sound of like a clown. Like, hark, hark. Like, it's, she's got a toy. Bean, come here. She does not want to sit with me right now. She really wants to just munch on that toy. So I, when we take a break, I'm going to just round up the toys. Oh, hi. Come here. Come here. Oh, maybe she will come. Oh, this is, uh, listen, the people want this, don't they? I mean, come on, come here. Why are you hiding? Oh, I'd like to see the baby. Oh, there she is. There she is. Show yourself. Oh, my God. Look at you. Those ears. Anyways, we're doing our best, aren't we, Bean? We are. All right, here we go. Here we go. Just, how do you just settle in, settle in my lap? Huh? Settle in my lap, and then I'll find you a silent toy on the break. <laughs> Hmm? That's, if only that existed, I would say a, a set of true crime and cocktails, silent dog toys, <laughs> so that you don't have to hear them while you're listening to the show. Exactly. Yeah. Or while we're recording it. But I will yeah. just say, uh, what I'll say in my defense is it's a bit of a learning curve for me with Bean, because Bean sure. is very dog-like. She loves toys. She loves 
Um, she's got a very dog energy, but my yeah. last two dogs, including current dog Fox, no interest in toys, no interest in playing. Huh. Um, so again, I it's not in my wheelhouse to automatically go round up the noisemakers. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. And this is when your mother training is going to come in. Yeah. All those times where I've said, oh, you're a mother. There's, it's going to become a thing. Yeah. Absolutely. One of these days, you're going to be out somewhere. You're going to reach in a purse for uh, to pull out like a wallet, but you're going to, and there's going to be like a, a toy in there. And you'll be like, I took that away because it was noisy in the moment. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I'm already, I, I went to pay for something the other day, reached into my pocket and pulled out loose dog treats and poop bags. So I feel like I'm, I'm halfway there. I'm hey. living on a prayer. I once reached in for a wallet. Pulled out a loose tampon that had been in there for so long that the paper outside had worn away and the tampon had like shifted out. So it was literally just the tamp. Oh, it was horrifying. I saw a life hack on Instagram, I think, the other day. Yeah. And so for those of us who are like to El Vino uh, did flow, drink sure. the vino, uh, if you are trying to reclose it and it's not a screw top, if it was a cork, you can get like a, a stopper. But what if you don't have a stopper and someone was taking a normal unscented tampon and, and put it in the applicator or whatever and it's the perfect plug? Huh. And I was like, that's just brilliant. No kidding. Especially if you know that you're done with that bottle for the night. You know what I mean? It's like, I got to put it back sure. in the fridge. I don't want it to spoil. That's like airtight. I'm going to try it. I I like, uh, you're, I mean, you're treating the wine like you treat your temple. Well, and, and this is a full circle moment right back to the canal. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. We're really going through life just in like a matter of minutes. That it's shows you how thing. fast life goes. We yep. were just, we were just, you were literally just born. And now we're already talking about tampons for you. There it is. If you don't stop, uh, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around for a minute, you might miss it. Name that yeah. movie. Oh, I, I know that movie. Yep. My brain is, uh, my brain is currently filled with tampons because I'm thinking of Catherine Hahn pronouncing it. She pronounced it tampon uh, in the movie <laughs> Where the Millers. Uh, is that, well, that's Ferris Bueller, isn't it? Correct. Okay. I was going to say Ferris Bueller, what? I don't believe in, involves tampons. Or it does tampons. not. No Do you tampon. need a tampon? Is, oh. I mean, it's one of the funniest things. I love Shout that. out Catherine Hunt. Oh yeah. Listen. She does not she, listen. She's coming for my job on this show. We both know it. <laughs> Again, I told you she would, she would get a trial. Yeah. yeah listen. And I She'd respect that. I'd like, yeah, I'd, uh, listen, I'd love to be able to audition for some of those parts that she gets, so it's only fair. I'd love to see you guys as sisters in something. I'd, I'd do that. You know, she's she's quite short. No, I saw her at a party. I saw her at an Emmy party once, and I was like, she's little. Everybody looks bigger on film and TV. That's why when most people see me in real life, they use the first words for years have been, you're so much smaller in person. It's like, well. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. But anyway, that doesn't mean we can't no. play sisters. I would just be the taller sister. I like that. Oh, and she's going to secretly resent you for it, but yep. that'll come out later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, what a gift yeah. we are. <laughs> um, 
Listen, let's get into it. The case, of course, is Richard Oland. If you don't know anything about this, do not worry, because I'm going to tell you a little synopsis right now. In July 2011, prominent businessman Richard Oland was found brutally murdered in his office in New Brunswick, Canada. Despite there being a lot of blood, police found no evidence of the crime outside of the initial crime scene. Police immediately zeroed in on Richard's son, Dennis, as a possible suspect. But did they miss potential suspects by focusing on just Dennis? Or was Dennis the real killer? Buckle up as we journey through a case full of lies, family drama, and police errors, all the way from our beautiful home country of Canada. I don't know if you can tell I was in a bit of a rush when I wrote I that. like <laughs> it. I like it a lot. It was also like I had completely forgotten how to do it. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I, I got the things done and I looked up and I was like, oh, okay. We're going to go in like an hour and a half-ish, maybe less. And then I was like, oh, I still have to do that. Yeah. Well, it is what it is. Uh, I'm all for it. So first off, I'm going to, going to say shout out to friend of the podcast, Katie, for bringing this case from today to our attention. Love it. We do often get a lot of suggestions for cases. Uh, we we hear your suggestions. We're doing our best to to plug away at them. You know, yep. it's going to take some time. Uh, as per usual, disclaimer right off the top, this episode will contain mentions of suicide and verbal and physical abuse. So trigger warning for those who need it. On Thursday, July 7th, 2011, William Adamson dropped his wife Maureen off at 52 Canterbury Street in St. John, New Brunswick. The three-story building was home to Printing Plus and Far End Corporation. Maureen entered the building around 8.45 a.m., carrying a tray of Tim Hortons coffee that she had picked up on her way to work. The main door to the building was unlocked, which was unusual as the last person to leave was meant to lock it. When Maureen went upstairs towards Far End Corporation, she noticed the door to the second floor was slightly open, which was strange as it was usually locked. She passed through the door and opened a French door leading to the office when she noticed what she described as, quote, a terrifically vile odor. The lights were on, a TV was playing CNBC, but the sound was off. Maureen was also noted that the air conditioner was running, which was odd because they normally turned it off for overnight. Maureen went into the office and put the tray of coffee onto a table in the middle of the room when she saw a pair of legs lying on the floor underneath her boss's desk. Maureen immediately ran downstairs to Printing Plus to get help. The first person she saw was Preston Shason, I believe, uh, who later described Maureen as panicked. Maureen told Preston, something's wrong. I see feet upstairs. Since Preston had first aid training, he ran upstairs to the Far End Corporation office and immediately noticed a nauseating smell. Under the desk, he saw a body, which Preston later described as simply slaughtered. Oh, God. The victim, yeah. The victim's legs were splayed out and there was blood everywhere. Preston went back downstairs and used his cell phone to call 911 at 8.54 a.m., saying, quote, there is a man down. Constable Dwayne Squires and Police Academy Cadet Trinda Fanjoy were in a squad car just 200 meters or 0.1 miles away when they got the call of a male who was not conscious and not breathing. 
They arrived on scene four minutes later and were soon soon joined by Constable Don Shannon. The three officers entered the office. They immediately noted the horrific smell, which they all recognized as that of a decaying body. They found a man lying face down in a large pool of coagulated blood. Coagulated, there we go. Uh, about the pool of blood was about a meter wide. There was also blood spatter on multiple desks, computers, lamps, filing cabinets, and shelves. Blood spatter was found nine feet away from the body. Sergeant Mark Smith, the head of the Forensic Identification Unit, with over 20 years of crime scene experience, later said it was one of the bloodiest crime scenes he had seen in his career. And speaking of blood, during the investigation, St. John police sent a package to forensic expert Dr. Henry Lee looking for help on the case. Dr. Lee did not respond. But for those who may not remember, Dr. Lee is most known as a defense witness in the O.J. Simpson trial. And if you're interested, you can check out episode 71, Nicole Brown Simpson, which according to Spotify Wrapped, was our most listened to episode of 2022. Hey! Hey! And if Apple wants to get on one of those Wrapped things, that'd be great. Yeah, for podcasts, yeah. We'd love that as well. They do it for your, your songs you listen to, but yeah, they need to get on that. Yes! So, uh, the victim's neck was twisted to the left, and he had sustained multiple severe head injuries. A garbage can was knocked over near the man's feet, and there was a TV remote, a set of keys, a series of papers, and an iPad on the floor. EMTs were having coffee nearby when they got the call. They rushed to the scene and noted that the victim was in a state of rigor, guessing that he had been dead at least two to three hours. They noted, quote, time of no resuscitation at 9.01 a.m. Police were able to use the driver's license found in the victim's wallet to identify the victim as 69-year-old Richard Oland, the owner of Far End Corporation and a member of one of Atlantic Canada's wealthiest and most prominent families. And before I get into the Oland family, I will admit I had not considered once who the richest or most influential families in this country were. I guess it just didn't dawn on me to care. I have, of course, heard the names, but then I never considered that there were actual people and actual families linked to all of those. For example, there is the Rogers family, who I am very familiar with because I worked for Rogers Video back in the day. And I remember when we all started because we opened a store together, but uh, they gave all of us a copy of a book about Ted Rogers, who had started Rogers Communication in 1967. I don't know anybody that actually read that book. (laughs) Um, And sadly, the store is long gone, but nothing beat the feeling of renting a movie on a weekend in the 90s and early 2000s. And fun fact... The Rogers family owns the Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, that's why they uh, call the Sky Dome the Rogers Center now, but I refuse to say it. It's the Sky Dome for life. <laughs> I respect that. I respect Thank that. you. Uh, a few other rich and influential families in Canada. Uh, in 1934, mechanic Joseph Armand Bombardier was angry. He couldn't get his sick son to a hospital because of a blizzard. So a year after his son's death, Joseph invented the snowmobile. And in 1942, he, f- he founded Bombardier, 
which is now known for financial services, public transport, and aerospace endeavors. Uh, the Sobe family founded the Sobe's grocery chain in 1907. The Weston family has controlling interest in the Loblaws grocery chain, as well as Ogilvy in Montreal, and Selfridges in the UK, which they did actually sell in April 2021. Frozen food dynasty McCain was founded in 1956 by brothers Wallace and Harrison. The pair had a falling out in the 90s, and Wallace left and bought Maple Leaf Foods. But shout out to McCain's, especially their Super Spirals, a.k.a. the Curly Fries. Big fan. Also, their deep and delicious cakes. Oh, God, I haven't had one for years. Me neither. Oh, God, why do I smell a breakfast deep and delicious coming at some point? Yes, please. You know, that sounds like a delight. Uh, Jim Pattison uh, went from owning a General Motors dealership in 1961 to owning TV and radio stations, Save on Foods, and Ripley's Believe It or Not. In May 2017, Jim Pattison, who is originally from Saskatchewan, donated $50 million to the Children's Hospital Foundation in Saskatoon. A month later, at Christie's auction, Pattison paid $6.3 million for the famous dress that Marilyn Monroe wrote. Marilyn, fuck. Those wow. Were, those were all the right <laughs> words in the wrong order. The dress that Marilyn Monroe wore to JFK's 45th birthday at Madison's, Madison Square Gardens in 1962, which uh, people may remember as the dress that Kim Kardashian wore. I, of course. The Met Gala. Was that yep. where she wore it? Yeah. Uh, and there are just so many more billionaire and influential families in the country. I don't have time to get into all of them. I just will quickly add the uh, Aquilinis, the Irvings, the Thompsons, and then, of course, more specifically in Atlantic Canada, the Olins. So John James Oland immigrated from England to Nova Scotia, Canada in 1865. Two years later, he became a partner in a brewery in Dartmouth, uh, John's wife, Susanna, was a big part of the venture, as it was Susanna's own recipe for brown ale. After John's death in 1870, the company became S. Oland & Sons. Susanna remained a pivotal figure until her death in 1885. George Woodhouse Culverwell, who was the youngest, but the most capable of John and Susanna's 12 children, took over the business. George got married in 1884, and they had five children. Over the next few years, they bought multiple other breweries, but their Dartmouth facility was destroyed in the Halifax explosion in 1917. Oh, wow. Which killed several people in the brewery, including George's brother, Conrad, which leads me to a Canadian Heritage Minute side note. Love this. On December 6, 1917, in the waters of Halifax, Nova Scotia, the Norwegian ship SS Emo... Emo? That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, collided with the French cargo ship SS Mont Blanc uh, at 8.54 a.m. The Mont Blanc uh, caught fire as it was carrying 2,925 metric tons of explosives, including TNT and a highly flammable fuel called benzyl. Just 10 minutes after the collision, the Mont Blanc uh, exploded, causing massive devastation and a 60-foot tsunami. Nearly 2,000 people were killed, and about 9,000 more were injured. The blast flattened 2.5 square kilometers, or one square mile, destroying 
1,500 buildings and damaging over 12,000 more. More than 25,000 people were left without adequate shelter, and to make matters worse, a blizzard hit the area the very next day. But I can't talk about the Halifax explosion without mentioning train dispatcher Vince Coleman, who sacrificed his life to warn an incoming train about the potential explosion. The train was carrying 300 people, which was due to arrive at the station at 8.55 a.m. Vince sent a Morse code message saying, quote, hold up the train, ammunition ship a fire in the harbor, making for Pier 6, and will explode. Guess this will be my last message. Goodbye, boys. Thanks to Vince's message, the train stopped 6.4 kilometers or four miles away. Vince was 45 years old at the time of his death. He was survived by his wife and their four children. In 2004, Vince Coleman was inducted into the Canadian Railway Hall of Fame. Uh, and speaking of Can Canadian Heritage Minutes, to all of the nostalgic Canadians listening, I just would like to say, Dr. Penfield, I smell burnt toast. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I can't hear Heritage Minute without it. Uh, after the Olin's Dartmouth plant was destroyed, George Olin decided to buy the Red Ball Brewery in St. John, New Brunswick. The family also owned Keith Brewery, New Brunswick Breweries Limited, and eventually rebuilt S. Oland and Sons. Of George's five children, only three had any desire to join the family business, so when George died in 1933, he left his breweries to those three children, George Jr., Sidney, and Jeffrey. But the thing is, George Sr. didn't exactly make it even. George Jr. and Jeffrey each received the majority shares in their own brewery. Whereas Sydney got full control of two breweries as well as 21.8% shares in a third. So the brothers felt a little cheated, but it wouldn't be the last time that a father in the Oland family made a business decision that his children weren't a fan of. Mm. George Jr. had four sons, the second being Philip Warburton Oland, simply known as P.W., P.W. trained as a brewmaster in Denmark and England, and later created the recipe for Alpine, a popular maritime lager. P.W. The head brew became the head brewmaster at New Brunswick Breweries Limited in 1932, when he was just 22 years old. In 1947, George Jr. changed the name of the New Brunswick Breweries Limited to Moosehead Breweries, which is to this day the oldest independent brewery in Canada, and while the Olins have since sold off their other breweries, Moosehead remains a family business. So, focusing on the case of today, P.W. Oland married a woman named Mary Howard, and they had three children. Their son Derek was born in 1939, and their daughter Jane was born at some point after, but for some reason her birth year is not listed anywhere publicly. But in between Derek and Jane... Mary gave birth to Richard Henry Oland in 1941. The family lived in Rothsay, New Brunswick, an upscale community situated 17 kilometers or 11 miles northeast of St. John. Richard attended private school in Rothsay and in grade 10 or 10th grade, if you prefer, Richard was sent to a Roman Catholic boarding school in Kingston, Ontario. No specific reason was given publicly for the move, but it sounds like it was some sort of disciplinary action decided by Richard's father, P.W. The two had a difficult relationship, as it was said that P.W. would often 
pit his sons against each other to treat them as competitors. After graduation, Richard attended the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton, where he graduated in 1966 with a Bachelor of Arts degree. Richard then earned a brewing technology certificate at Wallerstein Laboratories in New York. Shortly after that, he joined Moosehead Breweries. But Richard didn't slack off because he was handed the job. Instead, he pushed to prove his worth to the company and even helped to design beer packaging that was one of the fastest and most efficient that had been produced at the time. Those who knew Richard say that his two key principles were efficiency and research. And you know that I deeply respect that. Yeah. Richard's father, P.W., was made president of Moosehead Breweries in 1962, and in 1980, P.W. was looking to put one of his sons in charge. Derek had a business degree from University of New Brunswick and had been working at Moosehead since 1964. But Richard had recently been made the vice president of operations, and Derek worried that P.W. might put Richard in charge of everything, So Derek resigned and decided he was going to move his family to New Zealand. But P.W. decided Derek was better suited for the position, so P.W. gave Derek the role of executive vice president. Uh, P.W. later said in in an interview, quote, The younger one wanted to be president, and he hadn't the experience. Obviously livid with his father's decision, Richard left Moosehead in 1981 and started a trucking company called Brookville Transport. And yes, it's impressive to see Richard go and try and make something somewhere of himself. However, do keep in mind at the company's inception, most of its business came from Moosehead. So still impressive, but not 100% on his own. Uh, Richard later said that his choice to leave Moosehead was purely a business decision. But his wife, who we will get to in a moment, said that Richard was clearly very upset about being passed over by his father, and that it caused Richard to distance himself from his own wife and children. His wife said Richard was never the same towards their children after that. In 1982, Richard's brother became the president and CEO of Moosehead, and when P.W. died in November 1996, he split the company's shares amongst his three children. But in typical Oland father fashion, he did not do so equally. Derek was given 53% of the company, Richard was given 33%, and Jane was shafted with just 14%. In 1998, Richard sued Derek and Moosehead, complaining that Derek's management uh, of the company wasn't how Richard would have done it. The case was settled out of court, but Richard sued Derek a second time, and in 2007, Derek bought out both of his siblings and took over full control of Moosehead. As of January 2023, Derek's son Andrew is the current president of Moosehead and has been since 2013. After Brookville Transport, Richard went on to run several companies, including Brookville Carriers, Brookville Manufacturing, Kingshurst Farms, Kingshurst Estates, and his personal investment holding company, Far End Corporation. Richard also served on the town council in Rothsay and was director on the boards of several firms and organizations, including the Huntsman Marine Science Center, the United Way of Greater St. John, and Eastern Provincial Airways, among others. 
Richard was also instrumental in bringing the Canada Summer Games to St. John's in 1985, which helped the community, community which had been suffering from one of the highest unemployment rates in decades. For his community efforts, Robert received Robert Richard received the Order of Canada, and in 2002, he was awarded an honorary degree from the University of New Brunswick. In 2006, Richard was given the St. John's St. John YMCA YWCA Red Triangle Award for public service. On the personal side, around 1957. 16-year-old Richard met 16-year-old Constance Catherine Connell, known as Connie. The couple lived in different cities, but they would reconnect every summer. While Richard was working on his bachelor's degree, Connie got a teaching degree and became a school teacher in the early 1960s. On August 21, 1965, Richard and Connie got married when they were 24 years old. Soon after, they had a daughter named Elizabeth, who goes by Lisa, and later a second daughter named Jacqueline. Between the girls, in 1968, they welcomed a son, Dennis. When police notified the Olin family about Richard's death five hours after the body was discovered, the family already knew that Richard was dead. Connie later told police that a woman had called the house, asking if they knew why there were police cars outside of Richard's office. Concerned, Connie called Robert McFadden, who is Richard's right-hand man, accountant, and closest friend. At the time, Robert was at the police station giving a formal interview. Connie called at 1230, and Robert said, quote, I, in not so many words, indicated that Richard Oland was dead, without saying that Richard was dead. Robert had been on his way to work on the morning of July 7th, 2011, when Richard's secretary, Maureen, called him to say, Please meet at the Printing Plus. Instead, don't go to the office. Robert noticed the first responders and called his wife to pick up their son, Galen, who had accompanied Robert to work that morning. Galen was working um, for the business scanning photos for Richard's genealogy project for the summer. Uh, police told Robert not to talk to anyone about the case. So he decided to register for a golf tournament that afternoon. But once, okay. word, once word got out about Richard, people kept approaching Robert, asking him about it, so he had to leave early. And I know that everyone grieves in their own way. But if you find out someone you're really close to has been brutally murdered, and you're like, oh, I should go play golf, it just feels odd to me to yeah. each their own. But uh, Richard Oland was described as intensely intelligent, larger than life, tough, driven, and intense. And while he was very smart, some say he lacked certain social skills. Richard had a reputation as a savvy businessman and had a deep passion for competitive sailing. His yacht, the Vela Volce, which translates to fast sail in Italian, had been entered into numerous regattas, including, uh, and it had won best overall performance at the Rolex U.S. IRC National Championship in 2010. The following year, Richard received the Jerry Ruffs Award for Achievement in International Offshore Racing from the Canadian Yachting Association. So before we get to the autopsy, let's take a brief look at the scene. There were numerous monitors and computers in the office, and the last known usage of the computer was on 
July 6th at 5.39 p.m. when someone, most likely the victim, opened the website for Southern Ocean Racing Conference. On Richard's desk was a weekly investment newsletter, as well as a memo about a new boat that Richard was having built in Spain. And there was also a 2010 book from the New York Yacht Club. Also on the desk was a can of Coca-Cola and an envelope containing $110 cash meant for Richard's gardener. When investigators first arrived on scene the following day, uh, Richard's computer was on, but he had been logged out of his email due to inactivity. There was a USB cord attached to the computer, which had been used to back up his iPhone 4 at 4.44 p.m. The last activity on Richard's iPad was an email he had drafted at 2.31 p.m. Richard's 2009 BMW was parked in his usual spot at the corner lot and was later towed to the police garage. Richard's body was taken to the morgue where he was officially declared dead at 3.03 p.m. According to the forensic pathologist, the tox panel indicated a low concentration of ethanol, about 25.8 milligrams per 100 milliliter. To quote the website Science Norway, quote, it is common for more alcohol to be created in bodies that have been exposed to traumatic injuries. The crushing of organs in the abdomen can release a whole host of microorganisms into the body. Because of this, violent accidents often indicate alcohol consumption, even without alcohol being involved at all. That's very interesting. That's very interesting for our... There's somebody delivering a package right now. The dogs are losing their minds. I'm so sorry. Well, the, the, you want to know? I bet it's my... I bet it's one of my... I know. It was my fault. Hold on. Two seconds. Let's just take a quick pause. Sorry about that, dear listeners. That absolutely was some packages that Christy had had sent here. So it feels right. It yeah. feels right. Yeah, it's like it knew. It's like it knew I was here. And it was like, well, if you're there, we'll arrive. Exactly. Now, I want to take a step back for a second, though. This information about ethanol is interesting because this is something that I think is relevant to so many cases that we may talk about. Yeah. The concept that in severe trauma, our, our organs release more ethanol and that it's possible that there are, you know, I guess that's why they have to do tox screens and stuff like that as well, because if you're just reporting the amount of ethanol in the body after a violent murder, it may not be because the person was drinking. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, apparently medical examiners can tell the difference between that type of the alcohol consumed and the alcohol that's created. There's something about metabolites that get formed in the liver when alcohol breaks down when you've consumed it. Right. Uh, according to the forensic pathologist who performed Richard Olin's autopsy, the ethanol found meant that Richard consumed alcohol several hours prior to his death. Okay. No, al no alcohol was kept at the office. No one saw Richard leave the building that day at all, so no one has a clue where he got that alcohol. Mm. It also wasn't a ton. It was like maybe a drink. Uh, as far as physical trauma goes... Richard had six defensive-type wounds to his hands that broke bones in his fingers. There was bruising on the eyelids, and his left orbital plate was cracked. The head sustained five blunt force injuries, 34 sharp force injuries, 
and 14 skull fractures. Wow. Based on the blood evidence at the scene, it is believed that the most of the injuries occurred when the victim was lying on the floor. No murder weapon was found at the scene, but investigators believe that it was likely a drywall hammer, uh, as the victim's blunt force wounds were round and approximately three centimeter, centimeters in diameter and had a waffle-like pattern on them. And those not familiar with a drywall hammer... On one side, it's got the flat end that has like a crosshatch pattern and it's meant for like hammering nails. The other end is very sharp and is meant for scoring drywall. I will post a picture on our socials uh, just to, you know, because if you told me a hammer, I would have pictured a hammer. Right. I drywall hammer. I would have been like, that's just a hammer. Right. But no, it does have like almost like a blade on the other side. Got it. The official cause of death was multiple sharp and blunt force injuries to the head. A time of death could not be determined, but the pathologist said the injuries were rapidly fatal and it is likely the victim died within five to ten minutes of the attack. There were no obvious signs of decomposition, which starts immediately after death. However, it doesn't manifest for hours and it's based on multiple factors such as temperature, humidity, air circulation, that kind of thing. And the air conditioner had been running the whole time. It kept the room around 19 degrees Celsius or 66 Fahrenheit, which likely delayed the de- the decomp. Police can only say Richard died sometime after 6 p.m. Police went door to door hoping to find any potential witnesses or surveillance camera footage. On the evening of July 6th, John Ainsworth was working in the same building as Richard's office. John not only owned the building, but he also owned Printing Plus, which was situated on the ground floor of the building at 52 Canterbury Street. John told the police that he arrived at work around 11 a.m., and that after his employee left at 5 p.m., John was alone. Around 6 p.m., John's friend and former employee, Anthony Shaw, stopped by, and John said, quote, I recruited him to help save my sanity, as John was working on a particularly challenging project. At some point in the evening, both men heard loud noises coming from the floor above. They described the sounds as loud, quick, pounding thumps, Due to the loud machinery in John's business, he soundproofed the shop so it wouldn't bother the other tenants. But because of this, he said he rarely ever heard noises from upstairs. However, there was a former tenant up there who had children in the office sometimes, and John was able to hear them running back and forth. So it didn't completely take away all sound. Since the noises only lasted a few seconds, John and Anthony decided it was likely nothing more than furniture being rearranged, and they didn't bother to investigate. Both said they stayed at the shop until around 9 p.m. When asked by police what time they heard the sounds, Anthony narrowed it down to about 7.30 to 7.45, noting the noises occurred before a customer came in to have a document scanned. According to the computers, the document that... The document that the, com- the customer brought in was emailed at 8.11 p.m. John told police he believed the noise was around 8 p.m. A canine unit, including a sniffer dog named Leo, was brought in, searched within a two-block radius, but found no evidence of the killer's route. And there were only two ways out of that building, through a door on Canterbury Street or through a door at the back, which leads to two alleyways. 
Police searched the back alleyway, parking lots, bushes, an adjacent courtyard, a construction site, a block over. They found no evidence of the crime outside of the immediate crime scene. Police later admitted that they did not search a small grassy area behind the building as it was blocked by a fence and on a slightly higher elevation. With the amount of blood at the scene, it's seen it's likely the killer would have been covered in blood, but no drop of blood was found outside the office. There was no sign of cleanup at the scene, no murder weapon, and no sign of forced entry. To give you an idea of the city that it took place in, St. John is on the south coast of New Brunswick along the Bay of Fundy. It was incorporated in 1785, making it the oldest incorporated city in Canada. It is home to Canada's oldest public high school, as well as numerous Canadian firsts, such as the first chartered bank, the first public playground, first labor union, first public museum, and the first YWCA. At the time of the crime, St. John had a population of nearly 128,000. And while St. John was not free from crime, because I don't believe that there is any place that is, Richard's murder was one of only three homicides that occurred in St. John in 2011, making the homicide rate 2.9 per 100,000 people, which was the sixth highest number in Canada. The highest was 5.8 per 100,000, which occurred in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which has a population of like 664,000. To put these numbers into perspective, according to data.worldbank.org, the number of homicides per 100,000 people worldwide in 2011 was six. Uh, And Richard's murder was a vicious beating. Police described it as violent, unrelenting, and overkill. It looked as though someone had just lost control. And since homicides are uncommon in St. John, and since the attack was so vicious and personal, it seemed less likely that the perp was a stranger. And I think we can rule out robbery, since Richard's wallet, his Rolex watch, and the keys for his BMW were all left behind, not to mention the envelope of cash intended for his gardener was left behind. In fact, the only item that appeared to be missing from the scene was Richard's cell phone, which, to this day, has never been found. During a press conference on July 11th, police announced that they believed it was very likely that Richard knew his killer. But who would want Richard dead? Richard Olin was well known for his charitable efforts to improve his community. He had been married for 45 years and was a father to three and a grandfather to seven. Who would have so much rage towards a man like that? Well, St. John police believed they knew who the killer was almost immediately, and that was Richard's own son, Dennis Oland. Wowzer! Yeah. Wow, listen, I mean, this is fascinating. I feel uh, I I need to know more. I need to get into it. Every time I feel like I have a theory forming, then something's said to flush it away. So I... I guess much like my motto for this year, I gonna, I'm going to have to wait and see. Uh, and so are you, dear listeners. But let's take a quick break while we do that. Hit the can, grab a drink, and join us for more about the Richard Oland case on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Call. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the case of Richard Oland. Before the break, Christy informed us that police came out very quickly and named, it sounds like not even a suspect, but they named who they thought was killer. And that feels unprecedented. Oh, they they made their minds up immediately. Yeah. Uh, the words that, the very specific words that get tossed around in everything you read and hear about this case, which, funny enough, I actually did not write in my notes, tunnel vision. Ah. They picked someone, went, that's our guy, and then just kind of didn't want to look any, anywhere else. And that's, the question is, was it the guy or not? Yeah. But- Speaking of that guy, Dennis James Oland was born to Richard and Connie on February 14th, 1968. As Dennis was born with 45% hearing loss, he was later sent to Toronto for speech therapy and fitted with hearing aids. Until the eighth grade, or grade eight if you'd rather, Dennis attended public school in Rothsay, And like his father before him, when Dennis was in the 11th grade, he was sent to a boarding school in Quebec. However, Dennis missed his family and returned home for his senior year, graduating from St. John High School in 1986. In 1988, while hauling a trailer with Richard's racehorse from Rothsay to Ottawa to attend Ottawa's Capital Classic, Dennis swerved to avoid an animal in the road, and the truck and trailer ended up in the ditch. Dennis was uninjured, but the horse, known as Apocalypse, had to be put down. At the time, Apocalypse was worth $25,000, which is nearly $63,000 in 2023. In 1990, Dennis earned a Bachelor of Arts degree, just like his father, uh, at the University of New Brunswick. He then worked in the maintenance department at Moosehead Brewery uh, for a few months before heading to Halifax, where he attended Dalhousie University. After one term, Dennis left to sell household water treatment systems. While attending university, Dennis met Leslie Finney, and the couple moved to Toronto in 1991, where Richard got Dennis a job in the mailroom at RBC Dominion Securities. Four years later, Dennis had worked his way up to the position of stockbroker's assistant. In 1995, Dennis and Leslie got married and moved back to Rothsay, where Dennis became an investment advisor at Richardson Greenshields. Between 1996 and 2000, Dennis and Leslie had three children, Emily, Hannah, and Henry. In the late 90s, they moved into the house on Gondola Point, 
which had originally belonged to Richard's father, P.W. But soon things soured in the marriage, and Dennis and Leslie separated in 2005, before divorcing the year after. It was said that Leslie was tired of being married to someone who was often away from home. In 2006 or 2007, Dennis met Lisa Ferguson, who had a son, Andrew, from a previous relationship. Dennis and Lisa got married two years later. In 2009, Dennis went to work at CIBC Wood Gundy. His father became one of Dennis's clients, investing a small portion of his capital through Dennis. However, most of Richard's investments were handled by a firm in Toronto. Dennis was described as compassionate, polite, kind, and the quintessential nice guy. He was a loving husband and a devoted father. When he was interviewed about his whereabouts on the day of Richard's murder, Dennis told police that he had talked to his father earlier in the day, over the phone and through email, about a stock trade that Dennis did for him. He said, quote, there was a stock split, so he wanted... What he wanted sold and what he actually got sold were different things. Dennis said after work, he went to Richard's office to talk about their shared hobby of genealogy. Dennis's wife, Lisa, said Dennis found it difficult to win his father's respect and that Dennis had taken an interest in genealogy to improve his relationship with his father. Dennis's visit was not previously planned. Dennis said, quote, I went to the top of the stairs, and I might have used the bathroom, and then I left. Dennis claimed that he had forgotten some documents at work that he wanted to show Richard, and despite being right at the door of his father's office, Dennis left to go get them. He went to his car, drove back towards his own office, but on the way, Dennis realized that he didn't have the pass card he needed for the elevators, which stopped working after 5 p.m. unless you had a pass card. Dennis said, quote, so I went back and just, oh, well, I have enough information. I have what he wanted. Dennis said he mo- he spoke briefly with Richard's secretary, Maureen, who left around 5.45 p.m. Maureen asked Dennis to take a logbook, which Richard had borrowed, back to its original owner, Dennis's uncle, Jack Connell. Dennis then said that he and Richard had a nice visit before Dennis left sometime around 6.30 p.m. Dennis received a call from his wife at 6.36 p.m. He told her he was just leaving Richard's office. Lisa had previously tried calling Dennis at 6.24, but the call went straight to voicemail. Dennis said after he left the office, he stopped at Renforth Wharf, approximately 12.6 kilometers or 7.8 miles away, to see if his kids were swimming there, and when he didn't see them, he headed home to Rothsay. Barbara Murray and her husband, Douglas LeBlanc, said they were sitting in their car watching boats at the wharf between 5.40 and 7 p.m. on the night of July 6th. They were parked four or five spaces over, with Barbara in the driver's seat and Douglas in the passenger seat. While there, they saw a man matching Dennis's description walk past their car, down the stairs towards the wharf. The man was carrying a colorful, reusable Sobeys bag, The man then bent down near some rocks, picked something up, scanned the area, and then walked to the end of the wharf. Barbara said, quote, he opened the bag and took something red out, possibly a bag. He wrapped whatever he'd picked up in the red thing and put it right in the bag. Then the man returned to his silver vehicle and left. 
Police brought in divers from all Sea Atlantic to to search the wharf for evidence, including a possible murder weapon or Richard's missing cell phone. Nothing potentially connected to the murder was found, and they searched the area twice. Police asked Dennis when he realized he had forgotten something, why did he drive his car back to his office when it was just a three-minute walk away? Dennis said, quote, I wasn't sure I was going to, going to be going back. I was just probably going to leave. Dennis's car was seen on surveillance cameras arriving and parking along the street near the building. Dennis was then seen returning to his car soon after, and at, the car was seen again on security cameras minutes later, and Dennis parked in a lot nearby the second time. When police asked what he was wearing that day, Dennis said, Navy blazer. But when police checked security camera footage, they noted Dennis had actually been wearing a brown blazer. And that might not seem like a big deal, but police took that to mean that Dennis was being purposely deceitful and suspicious. So on July 14th, police executed a search warrant at Dennis's home in Rothsay. During the search, police found a receipt from VIP dry cleaners dated July 8th at 9.08 a.m., which is about 10 hours after Dennis was first interviewed by police. The receipt listed 19 items, including 16 shirts, a pair of pants, and two jackets. Uh, Lisa said, quote, We have four children, and we're going to a wake and a funeral. Dick, a.k.a. Richard, uh, being the person he was, a very formal person, we wanted to make sure we were respecting that. According to Lisa, she just grabbed random items from everyone's closets and took them to the dry cleaners herself, explaining that the items were needed for a funeral. But the St. John police believed Dennis had the brown blazer purposely dry cleaned to get rid of any blood evidence. And I will say this about the jacket. When Dennis was seen on security camera the morning of July 7th, he was wearing a navy blazer. When he was interviewed by the police later that same day, they asked what he was wearing the day before, and I think it's more than possible that Dennis remembered the navy blazer from hours earlier and just confused it with what he was wearing the day before. But the police were adamant that Dennis was being deceitful. It's just, it's, a, it's I think what we're learning is, and during delivery hours, this is going to be a real, uh, this is a tough time to record. Yeah, hadn't considered that. Hadn't, hadn't considered. thought about it. Hadn't thought about it. Yeah, it, it's just, it's never usually a problem because I nope. don't normally order to your home. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, some of the delivery services are also getting weird that you have to sign. And I'm like, just drop it on the doorstep. Just drop it and walk. Drop it and leave. Yeah, I get that. Anyway, my apologies. No, Please no, continue. No, no. Uh, so police seized the brown blazer and tests came back that had noted four small areas of blood. Oh, she was small theories of blood. Yeah. And the DNA profile um, around the blood matched Richard Oland. With this evidence and the fact that Dennis was the last known person to see Richard alive, police truly believed that Dennis Oland was the killer. But if that's true, then what was Dennis's motive? Well, according to the police... Dennis allegedly had a very strained relationship with his father. Growing up as an Oland, K 
came with very high expectations. According to Richard's widow, Connie, Richard was hard on their children because his own father had been hard on him. Connie said that all three of their children had issues with Richard or he with them. Dennis, who was the only son, bore the brunt of Richard's wrath. Connie said that Richard was verbally and emotionally abusive, saying, quote, he did not always seem to understand how his words might offend someone. At a family wedding, Richard became annoyed that the ceremony was delayed due to rain, and for whatever reason, Richard blamed Dennis for it because Dennis oh. was the master of ceremonies. My God. He called Dennis a lot of terrible names in front of everyone, but Dennis remained calm and refused to react. Then there was a family Christmas dinner where Dennis let the flame go out on a rum cake before it got to the table, and Richard, and this is a quote, blew a gasket. The scene was described as, quote, ugly. Over a, over a rum cake, I... I can't That's imagine. Horrifying. Connie later said, quote, his personality was the norm for our family, and we all knew how to work around that norm. So maybe Richard wasn't as pleasant in private as he was in public. It later came out that many people considered Richard overbearing, controlling, narcissistic, and ruthless. His family said he could be very stingy towards them. Richard gave Connie a two thousand dollar monthly allowance for household expenses, but he would only reimburse her up to that amount if she submitted the proper receipts. Oh, my God. Yeah. When Dennis was asked about his relationship with his father, he said that Richard, quote, had this thing where you can't be friends with your son. Dennis also said that Richard, quote, barks and barks and barks as though a package has been delivered. <laughs> I was just going to say that's <laughs> ironic. Yeah. Uh, and that he has, quote, a quest for perfection that wasn't good for their relationship. The police also claimed that a second motive was that Dennis was having money problems and that he would benefit financially from his father's death. His father, his estate, was worth $35 million at the time. So I could see why they might think that. But Richard had made both Dennis and Robert McFadden, co-executors of his will, which mean they got to split the nearly $900,000 executor's fees. But I assumed you'd split them equally, but according to journalist and author Bobby Jean McKinnon, for whatever reason, the executor's fees, Dennis received 100000 and Robert received 765000 so I don't know if that was something specifically written in the will or not. Right. Prior to Richard's death, Dennis was essentially broke. During his divorce in 2006, Dennis was given a $538,000 loan from Richard so that Dennis wouldn't lose his house as it had previously belonged to P.W. Oland. Because of the loan, Dennis had to pay interest to Richard every month and his interest checks for May and June 2011 both bounced. I will remind you that Richard was killed in July 2011. Also, after the divorce, Dennis had to pay his ex-wife Leslie $4,300 a month in alimony and child support. And when you add in 
the, all of this plus the usual monthly living expenses, Dennis was tapped out. In 2010, Dennis and his wife Lisa took out a $27,000 collateral mortgage against their house, and in March 2011, they took out a second collateral mortgage worth $163,000. By July 2011, both of those mortgages were completely maxed out. Then in June 2011, Dennis requested an advance on his pay from CIBC. But despite having these massive debts in early 2011, Dennis's financials really turned around after his father's death. Between October 2011 and October 2013, Dennis took more than 12 trips outside of Canada, including a family vacation to Bermuda in October 2011, trips to New York, Maine, Texas, Connecticut. The family also joined the rest of the Oland family on a trip to Turks and Caicos in March 2013. In 2012, Dennis paid off the two previous mortgages that were worth $190,000, and at some point he also bought a $175,000 boat. In November 2012, Dennis's wife Lisa opened a high-end consignment boutique called Exchange. But Dennis's money troubles weren't completely over. Shortly after Dennis was first interviewed by the police, his employer at CIBC suggested that maybe Dennis take a leave of absence. But when the St. John police publicly named Dennis a suspect in his father's murder, Dennis was, as he puts it, unceremoniously dismissed and forced into taking a severance package. Wow. Den- Dennis became the president of Far End Corporation. His father's office took six months to clean and renovate as blood had seeped through the flooring into the ceiling below. The renovation cost the company $30,000. Dennis continued to live his life as normally as possible while the St. John police openly investigated him. On November 9th, 2013, Dennis changed his Facebook profile picture to Harrison Ford from the 1993 movie The Fugitive. For those not familiar, The Fugitive is about a doctor who is unjustly accused of murdering his wife. Three days after that move, on November 12th, while at a car wash, Dennis was officially arrested for second-degree murder. When it comes to trials in New Brunswick, usually about 300 people are summoned for jury duty. Of course, in the more high-profile cases, more people will be called, as it may take longer to find jurors who aren't familiar with the case or are the right fit for that particular jury. For example... 500 potential jurors were summoned in 1991 for the trial of New Brunswick serial killer Alan Laguerre. 1,500 were summoned for the 1995 trial of Paul Bernardo in Toronto. 1,600 were summoned for the 2016 trial of Luca Magnata in Montreal. And 3,500 were summoned for the 2006 trial of Robert Picton in British Columbia. But for the trial of Dennis Oland, 5,000 potential jurors were summonsed. But the jury selection ended up taking way less time than everyone thought. Nine men and seven women were selected from the first 217 people. At the start of the trial, two jurors were discharged, so 14 jurors were left to sit through the trial. However, Only 12 of the jurors would be asked to deliberate at the end, 
with the additional two jurors being eliminated through a random draw. But the jurors wouldn't know who would be selected to deliberate, so you all had to pay attention, and then they would just pick. Like, it was, yeah, I don't really get it. doesn't make any sense. I've never heard of that. Yeah, well... Uh, the trial started September 16th, 2015. Prosecutor John Henheffer, wa- uh, who was representing the Crown, stepped down for health reasons and was replaced by, and I apologize because I do not know how to pronounce this, Prosecutor Paul P.J. Venwa? Venio? Something along those lines. Uh, my apologies. Uh, the Crown mentioned Dennis's financial hardships and how his life was financially easier after his father's death. They mentioned the bounced interest checks to his father and the fact that Dennis may have lied to police about what he was wearing on the day that Richard was killed. The defense chose not to make an opening statement. The trial started off with Richard's secretary, Maureen Adamson, on the stand. Maureen testified that she met Richard in the early 80s, when Maureen worked as a receptionist for the Canada Games project that Richard spearheaded. Richard later hired Maureen at Brookville Transport, and in 1999, he brought her with him to start Far End Corporation. Maureen stated that on July 6, 2011, Richard did not leave the office, and that she went out and grabbed Pizza Hut for Richard for his lunch. Around 5.30 p.m., Maureen was getting ready to leave when Dennis showed up unexpectedly. She testified that Dennis was wearing a brown blazer and that Richard seemed genuinely pleased with Dennis's arrival. Maureen asked Dennis to give his mother Connie a logbook so that Connie could return it to her brother Jack. Richard borrowed the logbook to scan as part of his genealogy research. Richard told Maureen that he would be there for a while and asked her to leave the air conditioning on. She left around 5.45 p.m. and noted that the door in the second floor foyer was locked. Maureen left the street level door unlocked as it's the office rule, last one to leave locks it. The Crown suggested that while alone with his father, Dennis brought up his money issues and asked for money Richard said no, Dennis snapped, killing his father. But the Crown knew the financial struggles might not be motive enough, so they also suggested that Dennis was angry at his father for having an affair. Oh, here we go. Richard and Connie had been married for 45 years, and according to their children, they were estranged. Richard was often away for weeks at a time, and it seemed as though they were keeping up the illusion of a marriage just for the sake of their children. In reality, Richard had been seeing a woman for eight years. That woman was also married. Oh, wow. Diana Sedlicek met Yuri in Toronto in 1981. Yuri was about 53 years old and a senior executive at Beta Shoes, while Diana was about 33 years old and an interior designer and real estate agent. The couple got married in 1987 and moved to Darlings Island in East St. John and had a son named Jeremy in 1988. Diana met Richard in 2003 at a public event. The pair hit it off and started a secret relationship. Diana claims that Richard's family knew about their affair, but Connie claims 
she thought that Richard and Diana were only friends. But when Richard didn't return home on the night of July 6th, Connie didn't bother to contact him to find out where he was, so maybe she had a bit of an inkling that something more was going on. Maybe she chose to turn a blind eye. Either way. Richard's daughter Lisa was suspicious of the potential affair in 2008 or 9 when she discovered a bottle of Viagra at the house. Lisa confronted her father, which caused a huge argument, and the two didn't speak again much after that. Diana claimed that Yuri didn't know about the affair, and Yuri stated he found out about it when he was questioned by police in October 2012. The thing is, not only was Yuri with Diana the night she met Richard, but Yuri also testified that they socialized with Richard and Connie in each other's homes about eight to ten times over the years. So the thought of, and you've been sleeping with him this whole time, like I, the whole time? Like the that, whole time? Yeah. I can't even imagine. Diana testified that she and Richard had been in a romantic relationship for eight years and that they had talked about getting married. She admitted she saw Richard three times a week, often at his office, and that they traveled together many times and were planning a trip to Maine at the time of Richard's death. The last text sent from Richard's phone on the day he died was a message to Diana about their upcoming trip to Maine, sent at 12.01 p.m., Diana tried calling Richard around 6.30. She said she called his cell phone every night at the same time, but on July 6th, the call went straight to voicemail. So at 6.44, Diana sent Richard a text asking, you there? But Richard never responded. So at 7.19 p.m., Diana sent Richard another text in a slightly different tone. Quote, you've turned your phone off? Why? You're not at the office, and don't tell me you have a business meeting because you don't. So tell the fucking truth, because I'm not sitting here do- I'm sitting here not doing suspicious things, and I have a lot of men who would love to be with me. Do this, oh, do stop fucking around, and answer the damn phone. I will call your house. Jesus. Slightly different tone. The plot thickens. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, I would like to remind the court that Diana was 63 at the time she (laughs) taped that message. And you know what? Good for her. May we all have that kind of spunk and vigor. That's a lot. Uh, That's a lot. You are are living life there, Diana. Jeez. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, it's just proof that age does not automatically equal maturity. When asked about that particular text in court, Diana said that she and Richard always teased each other. And I didn't know their relationship. And saying that if he doesn't answer his phone, you'll call his house is a threat because you're having a secret affair. Uh, And in my personal opinion, proof that Diana knew that Richard's wife did not know about the affair. That does feel like proof because why else would it be, you know... Such why a big deal it, if she called the house. Why else would it entice him to try and call her back so she wouldn't call the house? Well, and the other thing, too, is I I feel like it's just such an odd escalation. Like, yeah. you, he didn't call you for, you know, whatever, just over an hour, and 
that's how crazy you go? Like, again, this. Oh. I'm getting ahead of myself. She's something else, Diana. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, Dennis clearly knew about the affair. I assume his sister told him. Uh, And the Crown even argued that Dennis was angry at his father over the relationship and that he wanted it to come to an end before it was made public. When police asked Dennis who he thought might have killed his father, Dennis said, quote, The only person that comes to mind is this supposed girlfriend, because she really seemed like a whack job. Like, they call her the Dragon Lady. You know, she's this hostile... Somebody who you think could be that fatal attraction type person. When Richard still hadn't responded to her, Diana sent another text at 11.12 p.m. that simply read, quote, Pathetic. <laughs> yeah, she's... I'm sorry, that one got me. <laughs> she's... Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Uh, the next morning, she went to his office and noticed Richard's BMW parked in his usual spot. She sent another text at 9.37 a.m. asking, quote, what the hell is going on with you? Diana tried repeatedly to call the office, but it just kept ringing. She tried to get into the office, telling a police officer she had an appointment with Richard. They told her no one was allowed inside. Diana sent emails to Maureen and Robert McFadden. Got no response. Diana watched police tow Richard's car away. She became frantic, thinking that maybe Richard might have had a heart attack. So at 12.52 p.m., Diana did the only thing she could think of, and she called Richard's house and asked Connie why the police were at Richard's office. Connie then in turn called Robert McFadden, and that's how they learned that Richard had died. Wow. So Diana was the mysterious woman who called the house. Right. Shit. But staying on the topic of Richard's iPhone 4, Richard connected to the the phone to his computer at 1.46 p.m. to back everything up. The phone was then unplugged from the computer at 4.44 p.m. when the backup process was complete. The phone is the only item missing from that crime scene. Those who knew him said that Richard was attached to his cell phone. Rogers Communication, Richard's cell phone provider, as well as part of one of the Canadian family dynasties that I mentioned earlier, tried to help locate the phone on July 9th, 2011. However, they received a roaming error message, which they believed was some sort of glitch. According to investigators, Richard's phone pinged off a tower in Rothsay in the morning before Richard left for work. Then it pinged off a tower on Germain Street while Richard was at work. When Diana sent that text at 6.44 p.m., Richard's phone pinged a cell tower near the Renforth Wharf. And since Dennis was at the wharf around that time, Dennis was starting to look pretty guilty. And while Diana did try calling and texting Richard after that, the 6.44 p.m. text was the last one that his phone actually received. So the Crown had the cell phone in the same area as Dennis, bloodstains on the jacket that Dennis had been wearing that day, and a pretty strong motive. But what the defense had, and what we tend to have a lot on this show, is a large list of police errors. (laughs) And I don't have time to go through all of them in length, 
So for ease, I'm just going to list them quickly under the heading police cockups. <laughs> uh, for one thing, the crime scene was fully photographed on the day the body was discovered. But they didn't actually fully search it for three days. At the crime scene, police noticed a shoe print. But they just all assumed it was probably from the first responders, so they didn't bother to look into it further. It wasn't even mentioned at the first trial. But when the crime scene photos were later re-examined, police noticed there was blood on top of the print, meaning that it was there before the crime happened, and could have been from the suspect. That print was compared to every pair of shoes that Dennis Oland owns, and none were a match. Uh, possible exits for the killer included the front door or a back door, which led to two alleyways. Since the building is on a slant, the back door was in the foyer outside of Richard's office on the second floor. Actually, out, right outside that door led you to solid ground. You didn't have to take any stairs. It's just because the building was weirdly uh, located. Right. But that door wasn't checked for fingerprints or any trace evidence. Great. It wasn't even photographed until four years later when they needed a photograph of it for the trial. Mark Smith, who took the photos, said the door was, quote, overlooked during my examination. Which is funny, coming from the man who also in this case said, quote, you can never take too many pictures at a crime scene. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Uh, another officer admitted in court that he unlocked the back door, stepped outside, looked around the alley, then went back in and locked the door. But this was news to everyone because the officer hadn't written any of that in his notes from the scene. <sighs> An RCMP blood spatter expert who assisted in the case wasn't called until July 10th, three days after the murder. By the time he arrived at the scene, the body and several items had been moved from the room, which limited his interpretation of the scene. In order to avoid contamination of a crime scene, you're supposed to prevent anyone from being in that room who shouldn't be or isn't necessary. And yet, on the day that Richard's body was discovered, 19 people walked through that crime scene, including the deputy chief who admitted he went to the scene twice just out of curiosity. Mm, yeah. Okay. So yeah, most of those 19 people were simply looky-loos. That's horrifying. Yep. Uh, when police executed the search warrant at Dennis's house, lead investigator Rick Russell handled Dennis's brown jacket without any protective gloves. And once they had the jacket... It wasn't tested until four months later. Four months! The investigator months. who tested them blamed the delay on a staffing shortage. And remember how the jacket was taken to the dry cleaners? And the police were convinced that Dennis had done it on purpose to destroy the evidence? Well, they didn't interview the dry cleaner until February 2015, three and a half years later. <laughs> that was one of the questions I had in my notes. Yeah. Can we corroborate that it was Connie that took it in and not and not uh, Dennis himself? That was literally a question I had written down. 
But I guess they didn't think about that for three and a half years. I suppose. Well, get ready. Oh, God. What I am listing as the most egregious thing on this list. In the foyer of the second floor, outside of Richard's office, there is a small two-piece bathroom. And one may think, if the killer was covered in blood, they might stop in that bathroom to clean themselves up before going out in public. But not only did police not secure that bathroom, some of the officers on scene even used the bathroom themselves. Forensic officer Mark Smith took a paper towel from the garbage that appeared to have blood on it and swabbed the sink in the bathroom. However, it was done two days after random officers had been using that bathroom. But wait a second. You see a bloody paper towel in the trash. Knowing a murder has occurred in the building and you swab the sink with it? You don't pick it up? With tweezers and put it in a bag like we see on television? (laughs) That's absurd. Hey, this could be some blood evidence. Let's smear it around this porcelain. Maybe that'll help. What? Who are these people? It's the fact that of police officers using a washroom at a crime scene. For me, that I'm like, oh god, yes. But this isn't. I feel like there was another case where we heard about that too. I feel like wasn't there. Yeah. Oh, 100%. But come on, I see a bloody paper towel, so I swab the sink with it? Yeah, I... I can't. Oh. Listen, you and I, with no formal training, we could get cold? Not a person's walking in that damn room. We're going to clear yeah. out that fucking bathroom. That paper yeah. towel would be in a a, a zippy? Come on. Thank you for zippy. the proper tools. This is crazy. I feel like yeah. any any true crime enthusiast sure if if handed here here's a crime scene and let's say like a like a fake one like a practice one sure we're gonna get a better grade you know what i'm saying jesus i like that it's about grades it always was for me i know (laughs) i know oh god i want to say same but not if you actually looked at my grades (laughs) uh so the samples tested positive for blood but it was found to belong to Galen McFadden, Robert's son, and it's said that it predated the murder, which I don't know how they knew that. I assume they could tell how old it was. I don't know. However, one thing I'd like to note is the preliminary test that proved, yes, it was in fact human blood, uh, was done right away. But the investigators didn't bother testing to find out whose blood it was. Until 2015. <laughs> so I guess that's, we'll add that to the list of cock-ups. That's insane. Yeah. In the end, Deputy Chief Glenn McCloskey said, quote, There were a lot of things we could have done better at the scene. We certainly learned some valuable lessons from what we did. And so did we, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And look, I will remind, homicides are rare in St. John. So I understand if some of the officers were inexperienced. But once they realized maybe they should have backed up and immediately brought in someone who knew what they were doing. Like once they walked in and went, oh, we aren't capable. We don't handle this. Shouldn't they have turned around and been like, get somebody in here immediately. Close this. 
guard outside, don't touch that bathroom, we'll bring in somebody else who has experience. But okay. Yep. But despite all of these errors, after a 65-day trial, Dennis Oland was found guilty of second-degree murder in December 2015. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 10 years. The defense appealed, and the New Brunswick Court of Appeal declared that the trial judge had not been clear enough in his instructions to the jury about whether Dennis had lied to the police about the jacket he was wearing that day, and this technicality meant that Dennis's conviction was overturned, and after spending 10 months in prison, Dennis Oland was released October 25th, 2016, and a new trial was ordered. For the second trial, the defense applied to have a judge-only trial, believing that a jury would only look at the case with emotions and not just listen to the facts. Their request was denied. On October 15th, 2018, Dennis pleaded not guilty, and the trial was set to begin. However, the judge postponed the start date, saying that an unexpected legal issue had come up and they needed more time. Trial was postponed for two weeks. Those two weeks were up, and Judge Terrence Morrison said that due to improprieties in the jury selection, he had no choice but to declare a mistrial. What? When jurors are being selected, the defense and prosecution, or the Crown, can do basic background checks to ensure that the jurors have no criminal history. But that is as far as they can go, which we would hate because we'd want to go much deeper than that. Yeah. It turns out St. John Constable Sean Roca abused his police computer privileges and searched through databases for potential jury members. Seven jurors were improperly dismissed based on whatever information that constable had found. And since that is not allowed, the judge declared a mistrial and said the second trial would continue as a judge-only trial. Wow. And if this was a movie, which it is not, if it was, this is the scene where we'd find out that the defense actually paid the cop in the hopes of getting a judge-only trial that they wanted from the beginning. But again, this is not a movie. And to the best of my knowledge, that did not happen. But I'm just saying that's what would happen in the movie. Put, uh, oh, I love that I was going to say put Leo in it, but oh, let's keep it Canadian. A Ryan Gosling, Ryan Reynolds court drama? Excuse me, I think you're overlooking one of your favorite darlings, which is Paul Gross. Fuck. You do know I love Paul Gross. What's he been doing? Get him in there. What's he been doing? Oh, could he be the judge? I'd like to see him as a judge. I'd love to see him as a judge. I'd love to see that for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'd also love to see that for him. So... The judge-only trial started November 21st, 2018, and what I find fascinating are the number of things that came up during that second trial that were either not mentioned or simply badly explained during the first trial. For example, Richard's iPhone. In the first trial, it was said that Richard's phone pinged a tower near the wharf around the time that Dennis was there. To be more specific, Richard's phone pinged off a tower labeled SJFV. 
Now, when police went to the wharf and did test calls to see what tower the phones would ping off, they found they actually connected to a tower labeled SJLV, which is in a different area from the wharf. So if Dennis had taken the phone, it would have pinged off another tower during that 644 text message. Investigators looked at the area, and it was not possible to be at the wharf and have your phone connect to that same tower that Richards had pinged off of. Wow. Then there's the brown blazer. After all the nonsense of was he lying or not, police seized the jacket, and they had found four small spots of blood and DNA belonging to Richard. But what wasn't made clear is that the spots weren't sufficient enough to know where that blood had actually come from, and the DNA could not unequivocally be linked to that blood. So the DNA and the blood might have come from two separate people. Dennis said uh, Richard often chewed his cuticles, and DNA transfer from one person to another can happen through a pat on a back or even a handshake. In the documentary that I watched, as an example, a forensic specialist said, if you and I were to shake hands, like a really good solid handshake, and then I pick up a baseball bat and I hit someone with it, your DNA could be on that bat. Which is horrifying to think about. Oh, God, I feel like I need to start wearing gloves. I know, all the time. <laughs> well, I think we just get rid of handshakes. They're out. They're done. You know what you're going to get? A little wave. took them. Yeah. Hi. I, I like a, a how'd you do, like a little tippy of the hand, like a, yep. you know, that's, yeah, I like that. A salute. Yes. I think that's better. Uh, so Dennis took the stand. He did in the previous trial. Uh, it did not go over very well the previous time. The jury found Dennis to be not emotional en- enough because he was talking about the death of his father and he seemed very stoic and... The, the jury did not seem to respond to that. Uh, the thing is, this time, while recounting his timeline on the night of the murder, Dennis changed his story. What? Originally, Dennis said he met Richard at 6 p.m., left at 6.30, stopped at the wharf at 6.45, home in Rothsay by 7. Then he was seen on security cameras shopping with his wife around 7.30. He had also claimed he went to the office, forgot something, left, was seen on security cameras, came back a second time. This time, he's saying, he came back that second time, had the visit, left, realized he forgot the logbook, and went back a third time. This had not been mentioned at the previous trial, and now it seemed that Dennis had yet another opportunity to commit the crime. Did he really forget the book and go back for it, or did he take the book the second time and then went back and killed his father on the third? I mean. Then we have John Ainsworth, the owner of the building and a witness who claimed to hear thumping noises around 8 p.m. on the night of Richard's murder. When brought in to testify... John suddenly changed his story. The other witness, Anthony Shaw, said the noises happened between 7.30 and 7.45. John had said 8 o'clock. We know Dennis was not in the building at that time because he was on security camera in Rothsay 
at 7.39. So if those witnesses were accurate about the noise, it means either the noise didn't come from the murder, or Dennis absolutely could not have been the murderer. But during the trial, John claimed he was less certain about the time he heard the noises and said, oh, they could have happened as early as six o'clock. Hold on. Yeah. Yep. When John was asked about his initial statement he made to the police, John said 8 p.m. wasn't accurate and that it, quote, was an under-pressure guess. Anthony Shaw never changed his time frame, so it feels like John might have allegedly changed his time to suit the idea that Dennis may have been the killer. Especially when asked if he believed that Dennis was guilty, John tried to plead the fifth, which is not a thing in Canada. (laughs) My favorite was the judge going, we don't do that here. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, So then asked again, John said, quote, I concur with the findings of the original jury. Well, then aren't you guilty? Then you've just, what a dummy. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that John was purposely deceitful when he was originally talking to the police, but he got outright ornery when speaking in court saying, quote, just accept that I don't know. It's between six and eight. But when he made a sworn pretrial statement in October 2011, he was asked what time he said approximately 730 to 745. It just feels like John doesn't understand how important it is to have an accurate time on those noises. But if the noises were heard at 7.30, how did Richard's phone ping off a tower 12 kilometers away at 6.44? Who took the phone and why? What does a perp think is on the phone? Or what did they want to, why'd they want to get rid of it? Then we have Jerry Lowe, the MLA for St. John Harbor. I I put a little extra stank in that for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Jerry was sitting at the bar at the restaurant Tandy's, which is located right across the street from 52 Canterbury Street. Jerry said while he was there, he noticed a man come out of the front door of Far End Corporation and turn towards King Street. The problem was that Jerry couldn't remember exactly which day that was, but he knew there were photographers there at the time. Well, apparently July 6th, the night of Richard's murder, there was a tourism photo shoot happening at the restaurant and investigators were able to check security footage. They spotted Jerry arriving at the restaurant at 7.40 p.m. and leaving at 8.35 p.m. So is it possible the man that Jerry saw leaving the building around that time was the one that who made the noises that Anthony Shaw and John, John Ainsworth heard? Is it possible this mystery man was the killer? We know it couldn't have been Dennis. He was on security camera in another area at the time. The second trial lasted 44 days, spread out over the course of four months. The judge took two months to review the evidence and gave his official verdict July 19, 2019. Judge Terrence Morrison stated that the small amount of bloodstains found on the brown jacket, the small Um, were inconsistent with the amount of blood that would have come from committing the crime. And Dennis's car, Blackberry, shoes, and the bag he was seen carrying, as well as the logbook, were all tested 
and no blood was found on any of them. And while the judge admitted that there were inconsistencies in Dennis's statement, his guilt was not proven beyond a reasonable doubt, so Dennis Oland was found not guilty. And no matter how many things seemed to point to Dennis's innocence, the police were just convinced that Dennis was the killer. They didn't even bother looking elsewhere. Former police chief Bill Reed said, quote, The case in itself was fairly simplistic. You didn't have to go f- to the far reaches of the world. You didn't have to go and investigate 10 other people that are possible suspects. Yes, you have to look at a couple of people, no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, there is no question in my mind that Dennis Oland killed his father. But what if Dennis wasn't the killer? Who else could it have been? Well, what about Anthony Shaw and John Ainsworth? I don't know what their motives would be, but they were in the building at the time and would have had plenty of time to clean themselves up, and staying at the printing place longer would be like hiding in plain sight. Also, one curious thing worth noting, when the crime first happened, Maureen told the police the office across from Richard's was under construction at the time. John, who owns the building, said that wasn't true. So was Maureen mistaken, or was John possibly lying? Because if there was construction on the same floor, that could possibly mean a drywall hammer was right across from Richard's office. Did police check that space? To be clear, I am not saying that either of those men is guilty. I'm just putting out suggestions for discussion. What about Robert McFadden? He benefited financially from Richard's death, and when asked to submit a DNA sample to rule him out as a suspect, Robert refused. I'm not saying that makes him guilty. I'm just saying that makes me suspicious. Yeah. The police were able to get some DNA from a straw that Robert had used at an Eastside Mario's, which was perfectly legal. Uh, The Supreme Court of Canada ruled in a case in 1997 that the seizure of cast-off evidence like straws, Kleenex, drinking glasses, cigarette butts, that sort of thing, was entirely lawful in the case of persons not in custody. Robert's DNA wasn't a match to anything relevant at the scene anyway. But something else about Robert that rubbed me the wrong way, on the day of the murder, police interviewed him. He said he parked his car a few minutes before nine. Maureen called him and said, don't go to the office, go to Printing Plus. Robert noticed Richard's car in its usual spot and saw first responders in front of the building. And he said, quote, I had a sense there was foul play. Why foul play? If I see an ambulance and or police, I don't immediately think foul play. Maybe a heart attack, maybe a break in but not immediately foul play. Another suspect could be an unknown band member. John Ainsworth, who owns the building, sometimes allowed bands to practice on the third floor at night. John even testified that Richard rarely stayed late because he didn't like the noise of the musicians. Is it possible someone came in to practice? They exchanged heated words because Richard was like, I hate your noise, get out of here. And someone followed him to his office and attacked him. Or then there's the mysterious man who was seen on surveillance camera backing an Audi into a parking spot across the street at 7.45 p.m. 
the man appears to be walking with purpose, might be carrying something under his arm. It's tough to see. The man returned to his vehicle at 7.54 and left. We don't know if he actually went to Richard's office. He didn't turn right because he would have then been seen on restaurant security cameras. And he didn't turn left because he would have been seen on the same camera at the parking lot. So he had to have gone straight and he was only gone nine minutes. So did he go in that building, attack him, get back in the car and leave? Is it possible that is the man that Jerry Lowe saw exiting the building that same night? Did police ever track down who was driving that Audi? It certainly was not brought up at the first trial. Another suspect, what about Diana Sedlicek's husband or son? Her husband, Yuri, claims he didn't know about the affair until over a year after Richard was murdered. He testified he last saw Richard at Christmas Mass in 2010. But what if he knew? Would he be angry enough to violently attack the man sleeping with his wife? Especially when it turned out to be someone that he and his wife had spent time with socially and had welcomed into their home? I think it's absolutely a huge motive. I will remind, though, at the time of the murder, Yuri was about 83 years old. I'm not saying a person in their 80s couldn't commit a violent crime. I'm just saying I find it less likely. Diana and Yuri said they were home together on the night of the murder, and over the course of the evening, Diana called Richard and sent repeated texts, all of which pinged off a tower in Darlings Island where she lived, which is about 33 kilometers or 20 miles from Richard's office. Weeks after the murder, Diana did take a polygraph test, which I know is not the most accurate tool in a murder investigation, but the results said no deception had been indicated. However, when the defense had experts look over the results before the second trial, they noticed that Diana had a significant reaction when outright asked if she had killed Richard. Diana's results were considered a pass under Canadian standards, but those exact same sta results would have meant a fail under America's standards. When the defense experts attempted to review Diana's polygraph test further, they found that her charts had either been deleted or disappeared from police computers. Wow. The explanation was that there must have been some sort of computer glitch. Mm-hmm. And what about Diana and Yuri's son, Jeremy? He was about 23 at the time of the crime. He was living in Moncton, which was 152 kilometers or 95 miles away. I don't know if it's possible that he was in St. John at the time or not. And honestly, I don't know if police ever looked into it. And while I'm not suggesting that Diana's son was involved, what if he found out about the affair? And maybe he went to confront Richard. And while he was there, he saw Richard's cell phone on the desk and saw that Diana was calling. Could that be enough to make someone snap? Maybe? And maybe you're thinking, would Diana's son really be angry over an affair? Well, maybe not, but maybe he was angry over how Richard made his mother feel. In February 2011, Diana sent an email to Richard asking him to pass it on to her son should something happen to her. To the best of my knowledge, Richard did not send the email, so I don't think Jeremy ever saw it. But let me tell you, that email is intense. For example... 
a documentary that I watched uh, gave that email to a psychiatrist to read. And partway through, while talking about it, the psychiatrist was reading and stopped and just said, quote, good Lord. <laughs> oh, wow. That was, that was a moment for me where I went, oh, damn. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's bad. Uh, while the email starts out like some sort of suicide note, it takes a lot of turns, including moments when Diana refers to Richard's wife as an evil troll. And Diana suggests that she should shoot the evil troll. Then Diana makes some homophobic comments and then outright begs Richard to choose her over his wife. Oh, my God. It was very scattered. And I think if Diana's son ever read it, he'd be very convinced or convinced. He'd be very concerned about his mother's mental health and would possibly even blame Richard for causing his mother such anguish. But again, I am not accusing anyone. There has been no evidence linking any of the people I just listed to the crime. I'm just suggesting there are a lot of potential suspects in a case where police seem pretty hell-bent on just investigating one person. But one last thing about Dennis Olin before we go. Dennis and his wife Lisa have been estranged since February 2020. In June of that same year, Lisa went to a women's shelter and filed for an emergency restraining order. Lisa described Dennis as an angry, violent man who was losing control and suffering from PTSD. She said, quote, I am not sure what he will do, but he has PTSD and has had many episodes where he is not controlling his actions and becomes aggressive. Lisa claimed that while in a Toronto hotel in June 2018, Dennis allegedly used a belt to tie Lisa's hands behind her back and there was a physical altercation. She also said that people staying in the room next to them called the police. Lisa chose not to tell the police anything because it was just five months away from Dennis's second trial. In September 2019, Dennis allegedly tied Lisa's hands and feet with rope and pulled her down a dirt path at the beach. Lisa said she felt threatened. An emergency six-month restraining order was granted on June 10th, 2020. However, the next day, a judge said... There wasn't enough evidence to grant the order, and a hearing would be scheduled instead. Dennis and Lisa agreed to drop the matter in July 2020, so I don't know if this is new behavior for Dennis since getting out of prison, or if he is always like this and people lied about him when he was on the stand or in, on trial, because during his trial there were so many people who came forward saying so many lovely things about him. Uh, all I know even though it may be naive. I don't believe that Dennis killed his father. The timing, I will admit, fits. But the big thing for me is the blood evidence. If Dennis brutally attacked Richard, Dennis would be covered in blood. Even if he attempted to clean up in the bathroom before leaving the building, he answered his phone as he was leaving, and there was not a trace of blood on that phone. Then he drove away. And after the police searched that car for 16 hours, and it was dirty as hell, so very, very obvious that he did not clean it anytime soon, but yet not a single bit of blood or DNA from Richard in that car. They checked the shoes that Dennis was wearing that day. No blood. The logbook. No blood. I just refuse to believe that Dennis was able to commit a brutal crime like that for potentially the first time in his life, 
and do such a thorough job cleaning up after himself. If there had been blood in the car or on the phone or even the reusable bag he was carrying, I might believe he did it, but also Dennis knew Maureen's schedule, so if he went there with the intention of killing his father, why would he purposely be seen as the last person with his dad? And I know someone will say, maybe he didn't intentionally kill Richard. Maybe it was a moment of rage. Then where did he get the weapon? And while there are things that make Dennis look guilty, there is a lot of evidence that make him look innocent. And between that and the incredible amount of police errors, I don't think this case will have a chance to get solved when many of the people involved refuse to look beyond that single suspect. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. What a ride. Listen, I have so many thoughts on this, so let's take one more quick break, hit the can, get another drink, try and get your dog to stop barking, and we'll be back with the conclusion about the Richard Olin case on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Richard Oland case. I am fascinated by this entire thing. I truly yeah. have so many thoughts. I'm just going to get into all of it going through my notes. Uh, the first thing, Maureen coming to work with a tray of Tim Horton's coffees. I I was uh, charmed. Charmed. Oh, I purposely made sure to say the brand. I could have. I didn't have to. But I was like, I've come home. I have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to. Exactly. Know? Now... I'm no forensic expert, but we have been doing this <laughs> show for some time. and Which is close enough. Thank you very much. And the fact that there was blood spatter nine feet from the body, that's, that's, a, that's a sprite. Like, this is – it just feels, again, like it's such an important detail with the level of anger. Because yes. I understand that you need to hit somebody with a lot of force, obviously, to – uh, to kill them. But we also know that he had 14 skull fractures. So again, the police are using terms like overkill, which it absolutely sounds like to me as well. Yep. But that requires a level of anger or or um, rage, however you want to, like, I just think that's an important, this, this, it feels like it would have been a moment that was not planned. But then on the other side, it's like, but if that's the case, Unless you brought that weapon in there, even if we know that there was a weapon potentially across the hall, 
Sure. You're not getting to that level of anger going, hold on, going across the hall, picking up a weapon and coming back in. Like, th- there's like a slight cooling that would happen. Again, I you know me. I like to talk about this, uh, the psychology of it all. To me, it's sure. like someone went in there with that to do that. Even if they picked it up on site, the, the murder weapon, I feel like the yep. intention whenever this person went into that room was to, to, to kill him. Because again, it's just such a level of rage. It's it's yeah. so brutal. It it just feels odd to me that it would either be in the moment you meet that level of rage, you look, you pick up a paperweight and do it like that, or you've sure. gone in. Like like those are the two things. It just doesn't. And the other thing that doesn't make sense to me, in terms of Dennis as a suspect, is the going the going away and coming back. Like there's these cooling off periods, yeah. right? And that's not to say that you can't stay at a high level of anger. Obviously, sure. For periods of time, but you know what I mean. It just feels—I don't know. It feels odd to me. Um, again, these are just my own thoughts. Uh, this detail that that Bombardier snowmobiles were invented after uh, Joseph Armand Bombardier lost his son because he couldn't get him to a hospital—that is the most Canadian and heartwarming and amazing invention story. Yeah. That should have been a heritage moment. Because that's, I hope that's it was. a beautiful thing. Like, what an amazing, altruistic inspiration. And snowmobiles are so delightfully Canadian, I feel like. I, I know that there's sure. places and other places, obviously, that get snow that also use them. But I just feel like anytime I bring up a snowmobile to an American, in my personal experience, they're like, what sure. the heck is that? And I always say, basically a jet ski for the snow? Like, <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah, you know, great it's call. A different, yeah, yeah. slightly different technology, obviously. But um. Yeah, it just I and I was again I was very moved. I was very moved by that. Charmed. Um and good for him. Uh Okay. The the detail of what the dad the split of the money fascinating. The fact that that seems almost like it's a family tradition that they pass along to their kids as to like here's all the ways you can unfairly um Treat your children. Treat your children is so yeah. fascinating to me that that was like, again, a, a part of their their custom and family. Um, okay, I'm going to get into it. I think I'm getting through the beginning here, and, and now we're, we're going to slowly get into the, into the goods. Uh, there's so many things about these people. The fact, again, the little details about Richard, like, well, I'll give my wife a $2,000 a month budget but she has to provide the receipts and then she'll only get reimbursed like these people were insanely wealthy that those kinds of details always fascinate me for like mindset and and context right um especially when it wasn't even for her money her money to like do what she wants right it was specifically for like household things like she had to use that for like groceries and bills and stuff and I well, just... there's something also, and I know people are going to say, really, Lauren, that's the thing you're biting onto? Uh, don't pardon the pun. But for me, it was also that she went, that he had Maureen go out and get him Pizza Hut for lunch one day. Now, I'm not suggesting that Pizza Hut is cheap. It's not. It's one of the more expensive pizza places, in my opinion, sure. in terms of the like fast food pizza genre. But it is interesting to me when people who are very moneyed make choices like that because- I'm not suggesting that just because you have money doesn't mean you want to not eat trash. I mean, listen, all I eat is trash and I I have a great job. Um, But but it was just an interesting like, is that a money saving choice that it's not as expensive? Is it just that that was, you know, one of the few things in that area? You just don't typically associate 
or I don't typically associate a very extremely successful, extremely moneyed for generations of wealth human sure. going its Pizza Hut for lunch. It just, again, it's another one of those, those details that just like adds context to me about who this person is. Sure. I would expect, you know, like a sandwich from somewhere, like something that just, sure. I don't know. It, again, it was something where I was like, that's just fascinating. And then, of course, the details coming out about how he treated Dennis and the things that he would fly off the handle about. That's another point. Think about the same man that's like, how dare the flame on the rum cake be blown out before it gets to us? That man chooses Pizza Hut for lunch? I don't know. That's yeah. just like, it's just interesting, again, for context. It makes it f you feel off-center with this person in some way, which, again, I'm sure was was part of the relationship with his children, obviously. Um, okay. When you first brought up to me, John, the owner of the building, like, the, the first thing that came to mind was, well, how do we know they didn't do it? That was yes. the very first thing. Then you did mention that there was a... a uh, there was a customer that came in to print yeah. a thing, and then it was like the email came through after eight. And at first I thought, oh, well, I guess that exonerates them. And then now I'm realizing, no, it doesn't. Because if we know that the the noise, quote unquote, happened between 7.30 and 8 o'clock, we know it couldn't have been Dennis making that noise, whatever that noise may or may not have been. Sure. But if we also know that that email from that customer didn't come through until after eight, Chances are that customer didn't come through the door until after eight. So again, it's interesting to me that those two guys could be making their own alibi. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it got my back up immediately. Yeah. I was like, you were in the same building. Somebody was brutally murdered. And again, we're not accusing them of committing the crime. What we're saying nope. is... How deeply were these people investigated? Because what we've learned ultimately is that justice can't be served if you don't exonerate everyone else. Yeah. And when we see the list of, of police cockups, thank you for that title. Um, <laughs> I think we get a pretty clear view that it's like a lot of a lot of missteps were made. But yeah, that was the first thing that came to me. And then the next thing that came to me was who's how, can we prove? That Diana was the one on that phone sending those texts? We know that texts were sent from her phone and her phone pinged from that location. Sure. Sure. Was it her husband sending those texts? Were they in on it together? Was it her son sending those texts? Were they in on it together? To me, there's nothing that yeah. exonerates her based on that cell phone uh, evidence. If anything, well, especially it's especially once we learn what she's... well. That she, too, is fly off the handle, quick to anger. Well, and then the other thing, the, the bigger point there, too, how do we know she didn't hire someone? True. This alleged man in the, in the Audi. How do we know that this wasn't? Because, let's get real about this for a second. No murder weapon has ever been found. Nope. The cell phone has never been found. One would think... Creating a profile, which is all I ever want to do. It's the dream, I, uh, the, the job I wish I had. Um, one would think that if someone was committing a heat of the moment crime, yes, they would make some bigger mistakes. There would be evidence found elsewhere. But one could argue this feels like it was almost a contracted hit because how else would there be no blood drop, blood, blood drops leaving the scene. How right? else would there be 
No sign of any of this. We also know that his cell phone did ping somewhere else. So we know that that cell phone was removed, it feels like, by the killer. Right. But then was never found? It just feels to me like, and I know it feels like, you know, are there really a lot of contracted killers that you can hire in the area? Probably not. But we also know that I believe Yuri and Diana spent time in Toronto, a much bigger yep. city. So again, we don't know who they imported to potentially do this job. It could have been Yuri that hired someone to do it. Diana may not have known about it. But it sure. feels to me, again, if the if the polygraph is pinging on the question of did you kill him, it feels to me like if nothing else that could be an a, a sign that she knows something. So while she didn't oh, yeah. actually kill him herself, she may know who did, or she may have been connected. Speculating, oh, I could see obviously. That. Sure. Um, it's also interesting that she called Connie the next day because one could argue, oh, she really was panicking that she didn't know where she was. But if we want to, again, yeah. psychologist hats on, if this, if if Diana had something to do with Richard's murder, she would probably find it delicious to be the one to tell his wife. Sure. And I'm only basing that on the knowledge that we have about this email that she sent, about her, you know, quick to anger text messages, all of the above. The fact that a psychologist reading that <laughs> letter paused to say, oh, my God. I mean, that's <laughs> just, it feels again like it's yeah. like we should have at least been... I just feel like they should have at least searched further. Was her home searched? This is the other thing. Where are the bloody clothes? Where are, you know what I mean? Like, they don't yeah. just disappear. Um, but again, when you don't want to name another potential suspect, this is the kind of thing that can kind of happen. Yeah. Obviously. Now you're going to love this. The thing I can't let go of. Is that mm -hmm. bloody paper towel in the bathroom? And go with yep. me for a second. So sure. we know that the blood that was on that paper towel was Galen McFadden's blood, the son of Robert yes. McFadden. Yes. I have a few questions about that. One. Sure. When was he in the building when he would have had blood come out of his body? When was he last there? Because, now I'm not suggesting that we we, we know that Richard is a penny pincher, so he doesn't necessarily have some sort of custodian coming every day. But if there's bloody paper towel in the trash, how long could it have possibly been there? Three weeks? Like, it feels like you're probably at least taking sure. out the trash once a week, even if there sure. isn't that much there. Just that feels like a normal human thing. The trash is picked yeah. up once a week. One would think, that trash would be changed once a week. So we know that they said the blood was there from prior to the murder, but how far before? Was there an altercation between Richard and Galen that happened at some point? Galen sure. reports back to his father, and then we've got a motive for Robert. Sure. Right? It's also, yeah. like, not typical that um, bl people's blood is just left in office bathroom garbages. Like... Was it a bloody nose? Is it completely a red herring? More than possible. But to me, again, that is a detail that I think needed to be much further investigated into what's the story behind that paper towel. Yeah, 
this. If you find blood at a crime scene, whether it's the victims or not, that just to me goes higher on the list of priorities for me personally, if it was me detecting on the case. Yes. Um, it's interesting to me, again, that Dennis changed his story between the two trials. But, and I, listen, I could have applauded that the judge did give, in my opinion, what is the right verdict based on it was not, there was no, there was reasonable doubt. And the whole That's, point, the yep. whole point, we talk about this so much on this show, especially when people are, you know, incorrectly um, convicted of violent crimes if there is doubt, you can't convict them. And that's whether the person did it or not. That is how the system works. It's like that for a reason. Yeah. And I do commend that judge because I agree. There is too many inconsistencies. There is reasonable doubt. And whether or not it, it, it's it's irrelevant because the whole point is, is, is that that's why there's a system to ensure that you don't cock up so that that way someone who is guilty doesn't get off because yeah. there's a system in place. Um. Oh, that just made me think. And then again, the, the 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 cop illegally using the police computer. First of all, all we've ever wanted is 20 minutes on one of those police computers. I know. Secondly, again, in your attempt to try and, quote, help, look what you did. It, a jury could have convicted him in that second trial. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah. So again, I'm also curious, did he do that on his own or was he asked to do it? Again, great and was question. he the one who took the fall because he was a younger, like constable versus like deputy or a chief or one of the higher ups or something? Right. I guess the other question that I did have about Diana was also, yeah. you know, we know that she was volatile um, or seemingly volatile based on that email and all of the above. But if it were me, if I was detecting on this case. What I would want to mm -hmm. do, and I know that I need to potentially let this go, I won't. What I would want to do is I would want to take those text messages that we knew that she sent him in anger and how they were worded and all of the above and cross-reference them. There was a knock at the door. This is just, this is it. Daytime recording. Maybe not the move. Um, yeah. So many knocks at the door. Anyway, uh, I would want to cross-reference them with... Thank you! With older texts that she had sent just to see if they were written in the same way. Was this their sure. punctuation versus no punctuation? Was there a way... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, there's yeah. a difference I between how a teen texts, for example, and an 83-year-old text. So to me, that would be, again, something that would be very important as opposed to just going like, well, the cell phone pinged and her husband was with her, so that proves she was there. I don't think so. Husbands and wives will lie for one another, and just because your phone sure. is somewhere sending a text doesn't mean that you sent it. So, again, sure. that would have been something that I would have looked into. Oh, um, yeah. I absolutely would love to just read through pages of her texts for <laughs> multiple reasons, but... The thing that I, throws me the most is the way the they were written. Right. Because it's like when she says the word two, it's just the number two. And I'm like, does a 63-year-old type like that? But did she, and maybe, but did she always? Again, that's why I'm like, you got a cross-reference. Like, to me, it's like, bring yes. up all of these text records. Let's go. Let's go for six months or a year. Let's take a 
harder look at this. 100%. I I mean, look, the last thing I wanted to say is you mentioned that Robert McFadden's DNA was taken from a straw from Eastside Mario's. Shout out Eastside Mario's. The <laughs> angel hair vegetable pasta was my jam. I used to make them great. So much fresh Parmesan on there. It would get weird. I would say, please keep going. If you think it's too much, I want more. Um, <laughs> the bread, the, the, the salad. I loved Eastside Mario's so sure. very much. And one of my high school boyfriends and I, that was our yeah. weekly date that we would always do. And he always hey. got the like uh, French dip type salad, like a roast beef sandwich. And I always got the angel hair primavera. Anyway, um, that's just a that's just a Canadian. Uh, do they even exist anymore? I don't think they do. Do they? Um, I don't know. I thought there was one in Regina. I'll quickly well, Google to see. Either if it's way, still shout a thing. out either to the memory or the continued patronage of Eastside Mario's in Canada. Uh, I think the bottom line for me about this whole thing that I agree with you about is is there's just too much that doesn't add up. There was too many mistakes made. There was too many other people with lots of opportunity for motive. Um. Yeah, it just feels again like this this goes back to whether Dennis was actually is actually guilty or not of the crime. It just was so mishandled that uh we're at where we're at. But I do hope more than anything that he gets help if he is struggling with mental illness or or PTSD, sure. all of the above. Um I hope that he gets help and I hope that Lisa stays safe because I think uh, a woman who is saying that She's had a partner be repeatedly violent with her and uh, getting denied a uh, restraining order is uh, disgusting. And I think that if um, he is exhibiting those behaviors, I don't need to tell you where those behaviors lead because we talk about it on this show all the time. All the time. So I, yep. I do wish safety uh, for her as well. Um, did you have any other uh, thoughts or uh, things you wanted to comment on? Um, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it's just, uh, there, there, when I first get suggested something, I will look at it very quickly to see, is there enough for an episode, that kind of a thing. And there had been that time in between. So there was a little extra time I did not research and coming into this one, I was like, okay, great. I, I ordered a book online. I couldn't get the second one I wanted, so I ended up finding it at a library. So I was at the library getting books. I was online. It was just documentaries, all these things. And it just felt like there was more and more things coming that I'm like, wait, how is that a thing? I just, there are so many things that happen in this that I don't understand how things happen. Like, I'll never get past, you're in this building and you, and you use the bathroom. Oh, I know. There's an exit to the outside that you can just walk straight out to ground level. And they didn't think we should probably, like, not touch it ourselves. Because some an officer said he did unlock it and touch it and open it. I don't know if he was wearing gloves or not. But it's like, that should have been... Like, it's just... It was handled so badly, and I understand that that kind of thing doesn't happen there, so I understand that this was new for everybody, and everybody was kind of drowning a bit and didn't know how to handle it, but I don't know if it got handled the best. Yeah. But, again, so many things that seem like it's him, for me, really, the time frame, that's the only thing, assuming that the sound was something else... 
the time frame because how the sounds happened after the phone pinged somewhere else. Right. So if the phone left the building within minutes of Dennis leaving, did someone watch Dennis there and then quickly went? Someone could have come in from that back door. Yeah. Because there's not cameras on that side. So someone yeah. could have entered the building from the back, gone up. Someone could have been hiding in the bathroom, waiting for Dennis to leave. He left. They kill him and then they leave. But I agree. It feels absolutely like someone went there with the specific plan to kill him. Yeah. And I just don't think Dennis would have. Why would you be like, hey, just letting everybody know I'm here and then go and do it? Like, why would you do that so that they're like, well, the last person we saw with him was Dennis? Unless it was, again, a heat of the moment type incident. However, if that was the case, how was it so well cleaned up in terms of like, you know what I mean? Like, like, again, every time you think. Well, it could be this. It unravels again because it just doesn't the, – the entire thing, again, to me, is that if somebody commits a crime of passion, a murder in, in, a, in a crazy moment, I just yeah. don't know that, that an average person wouldn't panic, make a huge mistake or even a small mistake of some kind that would still have gotten picked up on. It just feels, again, no, no blood on his cell phone that he had picked up. We know he picked up potentially – timeline-wise, after the murder would have happened. It's just a lot of blood. It's a lot of blood. If it's spraying yeah. nine feet, it's that, yeah, this person is going to be covered in blood. And the fact that there's been no trace of it exiting the building or, right? It just well, doesn't make sense. that's the thing. I thought there'd at least be a trail to the door. Just like yeah. tiny droplets or something. It's like, were you wearing like a full... Like, did you go in there in a full head-to-toe kind of hazmat suit, kill him, and then take the suit off in the room? Like, I just, how yeah, else Yeah, I think not- that that is actually more than possible. But then that goes back to our original point, which was like, but then it wasn't a crime of passion because then it, you would have had to have planned that you were going in there with that intention. Yeah. And the specific weapon chosen, it's like, I I have a lot of questions. A lot of questions, not a lot of answers, unfortunately. Something we yeah. see a lot on this show. But listen, Christy Oxborough, amazing uh, work as always. You never cease to impress. Um, and we thank you, dear listeners, for coming along with us on this very barky ride. And uh, <laughs> listen, we're working for, as I said, 2023. Wait and see. Wait and see. Now we know. Wait and see. Now we know. And we will adjust. Uh, But we're so grateful to have you along with us uh, for another year of True Crime and Cocktails. Uh, If you haven't already, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, uh, Twitter at Not Detectives. And of course, if you are looking for some more bonus episodes, you can go to patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails. Learn more about that over there. And finally, if you're looking for True Crime and Cocktails merch, the only place to buy official True Crime and Cocktails merch is, of course, truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as well. Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? I assumed you might because it's your episode. I absolutely will. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Conscious Development. This, of course, is November's patrons poll pick 
Uh, it is, uh, there's a poll every month on Patreon. So, uh, check that out if you are interested in helping choose future episodes of our show. Uh, and this is a, this is a very confounding one. Terry Hoffman, woman who ran, uh, uh, what some would call a cult called Conscious Development. We'll see what information I bring, but I'm going to lean towards saying it was. Uh, we're going to learn <laughs> all about that on the next episode of the show. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Welcome to the family, Bean. Oh, thanks. Good night, Paul Gross. Oh, yeah. <laughs>